This is a free non-commercial podcast made possible by our patrons. Our patrons help keep these podcasts without jarring modern commercials. Thank you for supporting our program. If you want to become a patron to support our programs, you can. For as little as $1 a month, you can become a patron and receive special perks as a supporter of OTR Now. To become a patron, visit our webcast page at otrnow.com and click on the Patreon link. And thank you to all the patrons who have helped keep old time radio alive. Reminiscing, I feel you near. Once more, you're my love of yesteryear. It's time for the OTR Now radio program. Featuring programs from the golden age of radio. And here's your host, Rick Radke. And welcome to the OTR Now radio program. I hope you'll enjoy the next three hours when we present the great programs from the golden age of radio. The Cisco Kid was a fictional character found in numerous film, radio, television, and comic book series. It was based on the fictional Western character created by O. Henry in his 1907 short story, The Caballero's Way. In movies and television, the kid was depicted as a heroic Mexican caballero, even though originally he was a cruel outlaw. The Cisco Kid came to radio on October 2, 1942, with Jackson Beck in the title role and Louis Soren as Pancho. This series continued on Mutual until 1945, and was followed by another mutual series in 1946, starring Jack Mather and Harry Lang, who continued to head to cast for a syndicated series of more than 600 episodes from 1947 to 1956. This episode, Mad Women, was from August 18, 1953, The Adventures of the Cisco Kid. Here's adventure. Here's romance. Here's the famous Robin Hood of the Old West. Cisco, the sheriff, he is getting closer. This way, Pancho, Mamano, the Cisco Kid. The Cisco Kid and our exciting story, The Mad Woman of Desolation House. The people of the frontier town of Forty Oaks paid little attention to Sonta, the Indian woman. They knew she was of great size and incredible strength, as they knew she lived alone in huge, windswept, deserted desolation house, where years ago she worked as servant. But they did not know that of late years her brooding mind had turned, nor that behind her passive expression looked a deadly ferocity born of all things out of a great devotion. As our story opens, Sonta is hurrying through a long corridor carrying a tray. She stops at the door. Is Sonta happy? 
Little flower, home. Little flower, stay home. Never go away again. Santa, Santa, bring supper, little flower. Bring food, little flower, like best. Santa, take cloth away from mouth. Untie hands. Santa, wait on little flower. Santa, let me go. Please let me go. Now, little flower, eat. Why do you keep calling me little flower? I'm not little flower. I don't know what you're talking about. What did you bring me to this terrible place? Many summer ago, Santa worked for little flower. When husband closed big house, take little flower to east. Little flower say, someday come back. Santa wait. Then Santa see little flower on street. When night fall, Santa bring little flower home. Please, I, I don't know anything about it. I came to Forty Oaks to visit friends. You've got the wrong person, Santa. No. You look like my little flower. No. Same face so high. You, little flower, been home three days. Soon, little flower, remember. No. Eat. <laughs> Can't eat. I'm not hungry. Santa feed. Need food. Santa wait on little flower. All rest of life. No. Santa feed. Open mouth. No, no. Eat. I. I can't stay in this place. I can't. I can't. I can't. <laughs> And you say the senorita was visiting the senora, Sheriff? That's right, Cisco. Phyllis Morris is the daughter of my wife's closest friend back east. And three days ago, she went out for a walk just before dark, and we haven't seen her since. Well, where did she go for her walk, Sheriff? Well, my wife said Phyllis started down toward the end of the street. The street ends right at the mouth of the canyon, as you know. Not any tracks, Sheriff? Not a thing, Poncho. Oh. But if we can get our hands on them two escaped killers, Cisco... I figure we can find Phyllis. You think they took the senorita, huh? I think he did. Jake Madden and two horse whaling. See, I know of them both. They're about hombres, Sheriff. Yeah, them two would have a motive for taking a woman with them. If a posse caught up with them, they could threaten to kill her unless the posse let them go. You told me, Sheriff, that when the senorita first arrived a week ago, an Indian woman watched her closely for some moments. Yeah, that was at the store. But Santa's harmless. Besides, there'd be no point in her taking Phyllis. How long has that old house been boarded up? Oh, maybe 20 years. And she has been living there ever since, all alone? As far as I know, Cisco. She worked for the Carters for years before they closed the house and left. Guess she just got in the habit of living there and stayed on. It's thunder, Cisco. Storm come. Say, Pancho. Uh, has that house been offered for sale? Yeah, but nobody wanted it. <laughs> Word got around it was haunted. That's a lot of foolishness. But you know how people are about such things. But let's forget about Sonton Desolation House and figure on how we can run down them outlaws. Sheriff, you sent for Pancho and me to help you find those bandidos. But your story about that Indian woman interests me very much. Tonight, if you do not mind, Pancho and I will go have a look at Desolation House.
Sure, that, that's mighty sharp lightning, Wayland. We're in for a good one. That's why we're heading for the old house, Jake. There's no other place we can get in under cover, and I ain't aiming to get wet. Oh, look at that lightning. And say, Wayland, I saw somebody standing in one of them upstairs windows. A woman. There's nobody in that house. It's falling to pieces. Just the same, I tell I'll you. Stop your yapping. There we are. Now, come on. Um, I wish we had a light. I got some matches. Maybe there'll be an old candle stub lying around. Hey, that looks like a candle stub over on that fireplace mantle. Oh, sure is. We're in luck. Quite an old place at that. Come on, Jake. Let's take a look around upstairs. Keep your guns ready, Waylon. What for? The shadows? I saw somebody in that window. Uh, you ever got up nerve enough to shoot down a bank guards more than I know? Now, let's look in this room here. Uh, I guess this must have been what they call a library, huh, Jake? Got a nice panel and... Come on over here, look at it. Big room, too. Plenty big. Hey, look over there, Jake. Yeah. Hey, what's that noise? Hey, look out, Waylon! What happened to the light? Light a match, quick! Something knocked that candle right out of my hand, Waylon. Hurry up with that match! I'm hurrying. Look, there's a candle stub on the floor ten feet away. Or maybe a bat knocked it out of your hand. Here, light it up again. Oh, no, it wasn't any bat. Hit my hand hard. I'll get another match. Yeah. Oh, great snakes. Waylon, Waylon, look. Look up toward the ceiling. It's a skull. A death's head. But it, it's moving along the ceiling. The, the thing's grinning at us. Shoot at it. Shoot quick. It's still moving. Again, sir. <laughs> What's that? He's not here. What is already dead now. Oh, oh I got enough, Waylon. I'm getting out of here. Yeah, me too. I'll take the rain any time to this. Jake, wait. There's a couple of armories coming this way. I just saw him in that flash of lightning. Let him come. I'm leaving. We can't leave. They got horses. If it's a sheriff, he'd ride us down in no time. Come on. Back up the stairs. No. No, nothing doing, Waylon. Back up the stairs, I said. Ghosts or no ghosts, I ain't going back to the pen to hang. <laughs> Pancho, I see the stables, Cisco. What we do with our horses? Well, the porch is wide, Pancho. We'll take them up there out of the rain. Holy oh, oh, loco. Mad in me, this rain. We will lead them up on the porch, Pancho. Uh-huh. Carefully. Might be rotten boards they would break through. Gee, uh, Cisco. Here, you take the horses. I will walk ahead and test the boards. Pancho, take. Diablo, loco. Boards all right, Cisco. Yeah. So far they are, Pancho. Let's yeah, see. Bring them up. That one's closed. Yeah. Let's go in the house, Pancho. Pancho, not know why we go in the house on a night like this, Cisco. Pancho, I see his face in front of his hands. I brought some candles, amigo. Huh? If that Indian woman, Sota, brought the senorita here, she would not be too watchful on a night like this. Come up. Uh, more lightning. Uh, no 
Or hang on the hitches, this boat. See. Well, come on. Let's go in. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I like one of these candles. Santo! Down, Pancho. Down behind the staircase. Pancho? Si, Cisco. But the Indian woman too watchful for Pancho. Those shots came from the head of the stairs, amigo. Uh, we not go up the stairs, Cisco. Not up these stairs, no. Uh-huh. We will look for the back stairs. Uh-huh. There's a room to the right of us, amigo. I saw it as we came in. We will go in there. Si, Cisco. Ah, there. Wait, wait. Now stand here until the next flash of lightning gives us our bearings. Mother me, I. Pancho, see you too, Cisco. Big ghost. Stand there and look at us. Other end of the room. There was the Indian woman, Pancho. Indian woman? Draw your guns and guard this door. Uh-huh. I will strike another match. I want to talk to her. Santa, keep little flowers. Santa, kill men. <laughs> uh, what that? Cisco, the head of Pancho's head stand up straight. Wait till I strike another match, Pancho. Uh-huh. Be on your guard. See? We will grab the woman, Pancho, and... Uh, Cisco, woman not there. But how could she get out of this room? There is no other door but this one. Go, Cisco. Adios, Cisco. No, no. Pancho, come back here. But, but, Cisco. Come back here, I tell you. Go, Cisco. We are going to get to the bottom of all this business. Hombre, go. Upstairs, talk. Woman goes to this room. Walk through the wall. Pancho, I like Cisco. Pancho, I'm going to light this candle. And put it here on the mantel so you will have some light. Now I'm going to look for the back stairs in this house. Pancho, go with you, Cisco. I want you to stay here, amigo, and guard that front door. If anyone tries to come in or go out, stop them. Pancho try, but Pancho doesn't know how to stop ghosts. There are no ghosts. Uh, Cisco, tell that to the ghosts. Now you do as I tell you, Pancho. I will not be long. Um, Pancho not want to be alone here. P- poor Pancho. What, 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 that, what, 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 now, Santa, take men. What do you say? Santa, keep little flowers. Santa, kill men. No, 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 not come near Pancho. Wait for Pancho. Aye, the lightning, the big woman, look at Pancho. Men come with some blood. No, no, let go for Pancho. Santa, Pancho. Come, Mother, me, a woman stronger than Cisco. Cisco, Cisco, come help Pancho. Quick, quick, come help Pancho. Take men through walls. Cisco, Cisco, Cisco. Pancho, Pancho. Candle's going out. The room is dark. Now I can see. Pancho, Pancho, Pancho. Mother, me, where are you? And Sonta, the madwoman of Desolation House, will come back next for Cisco. In just a moment, we'll return to the Cisco Kid. Now, 
back to the Cisco Kid in our thrilling story, The Mad Woman of Desolation House. When Cisco left Pancho in a front room of the old deserted mansion to guard the front door while Cisco went to look for the back stairs, Sonta, the gigantic insane Indian woman, came into the room through a wall panel, overpowered Pancho, and carried him into the wall passageway. Now, as Cisco arrives in the room... Pancho could not just disappear into thin air. There are no windows in the room that are not boarded up. I see no sign of a trapdoor on the floor, so there must be some entrance into this wall. Wait. Someone's creeping down the stairs. This is close enough to the door, Whalen. Let's make a run for it. All right. Not so fast, hombres. I want to have a look at both of you. And I did get a look at you in the flash of the lightning. Cut him down, Jake. Now in blazes can I gun down, but I can't see. Jake Madden and two-horse Whalen. The sheriff wants you two, hombres. And you might also know something about these goings on here tonight. Help! He's got me by the neck, Whalen. Then whip him. Oh, well. Oh. What's going on in there? Cisco. Cisco. It's the sheriff, Jake. Come get him. No. The posse may be with him outside. Come on. we got to hide in this house. Cisco. You in there? See, si, see, si, sir. You're hurt. No, no, not badly. One of those hombres hit me with his gun. I'm all right. Glad you brought that lantern with you. In this house tonight, candles go out quickly. Too quickly. Well, I figured I'd better come over here after all. Who are those two hombres you mentioned? Jake Madden and Wayland, Sheriff. No. In this house? Well, where'd they go? I do not know. But Pancho disappeared from this room only a few moments ago. Help me find a panel that opens into the wall. You told me that Indian woman was harmless, Sheriff. Yeah? From what I have seen and heard here tonight, she is more deadly than all the rattlesnakes in this county. Don't leave one man and get other men. Santa put men on floor here. Oh, who? Is he dead? Man not dead. He go sleep. Santa hit man on neck with edge of hand. Santa tie man now with rope. Who is he, Santa? What was all that shooting? Men come. Take little flower from Santa. Santa bring all men here. Santa kill men. No, no. Santa kill men, so they not take little flower. No. Little flower not cry out. Or Santa kill little flower. Now, Santa go back. In passageway. Many passageway. Many panel. Little flower, husband, Bill house this way to hide gold. Santa, listen to me. I'm not little flower. I haven't any husband. Maybe I look like her, but I'm not little flower. Please, please let me go. Please. Well, little flower, remember soon. Now, Santa, go. Sheriff, pull up your lantern to this panel. Yeah. Might be right at this point. Uh, shh, shh, shh. Hmm? What's the matter, Cisco? Someone is coming along inside the passageway, Sheriff. Put out your lantern. But look, put it out your lantern quickly. Yeah, now we can't see a blasted thing. Shh, not so loud. 
We can in a moment. The storm is passing and the moon is coming out. Someone is coming out into the room, Sheriff. Back here quickly, behind the fireplace wall. Now, do not make a sound. Some to look for other men. That's hers, Isco. Other men not here. Some to find other men. Kill! She's gone into another part of the house. Come, Sheriff. This is the panel right here. There must be a spring on this side that will open it. The panel's open, Cisco. Get inside, Sheriff. I will follow you. All right. Now I will close this panel. And you can light that lantern again if you will. Here, I strike the match. Ah, there you are, Sheriff. This passageway has a set of stairs that leads up to the next floor. Come, we will go up. This. Another panel hinge. See, a modern mirror. Look above you, Sheriff. Great Scott. Is that a skull? See, arranged on a wire that goes out to somewhere through that hole. Mm-hmm. Cover your lantern for a moment, Sheriff. All right. See, phosphorus on the skull. Evidently, that skull is meant to frighten people who come into this house. Keep that lantern covered for just a moment more. I'm going to open this panel. It may open into a room. Sheriff, look. There are your two convicts in that room. You can just make them out in the light that comes in through a crack in that boarded window. Might as well take them right now, Cisco. Santo, that Indian woman is coming into the room behind them with a knife. Uncover the lantern, Sheriff. Look out, you hombres! Son to kill now! Yes, look out! Madre me if I can shoot that knife out of her hand! <coughs> into the room, Sheriff! Take these hombres, Sheriff! I'll try to stop Santo! Get them up, you hombres! She's nowhere to be seen. This old house must be full of panels and passageways. See, she is back in the passageway. Little flower. She means the senorita. I'll be with you, Cisco, as soon as I get these always handcuffed. I cannot wait for you, Sheriff. I must search the whole passageway in a hurry. Man, not take little flower. Man, not take Santa. Santa, wait. Do not open that door. Santa, open door. Santa, go to little flower. Santa, I want to talk to you. I am your friend. Not Santa's friend. Santa. Pancho, keep calm. Do not make matters worse. You too, senorita. But she's got a knife. Santa, listen to my words of wisdom. I will speak in the language of your tribe. Arinawi. Santa. Etan. Oh, speak in language of Santa tribe. It is your ancestors who speak through me, Santa. They tell me to tell you that the land of the great spirit is green and fertile and rich in the meat of the buffalo. Will you listen more, Santa? Santa, kill! Yet listen, Santa. They say that those who kill will not come to that fertile land one day. They will dwell in the land that is rocky and barren with starvation and misery. I got him, Cisco, and I'm going to... Sheriff, get up. Santo, here, man, with you. Santo, not believe you. Mother of me, if you had not spoken, Sheriff, draw your gun. I will draw mine. Santa, I would speak more. Aim at the door lock, Sheriff. When I give the word, we will both fire. All right. Will you listen yet again, Santa? Santa, not listen to tongue of falsehood. Cisco, not wait longer. Santa, I haven't done anything to you. Now, Sheriff. Oh, get that knife away from my throat. Put down that knife. Grab her, Sheriff. Get back on her, Cisco. Santa, stop. It would do you no good to try to kill us. 
you will only get yourself hurt. Uh, I sure hate to hit her, Cisco, but she's strong as an ox. There is no need to hit her. Sota, we are not going to harm you. Do you understand? We are not going to harm you. Now drop that knife. Santa not try kill now. Santa only want serve little flowers. Cisco, the senorita faint. I do not blame the senorita. Sheriff, have you another set of handcuffs with you? Yeah, I have, Cisco. Put your hands behind your back, Santa. You have a sickness of the mind, Santa. We are going to take you to a doctor, but you will not be harmed. Santa not care now. Now, I'll untie Phyllis. Oh, the poor kid. Just about scared to death. I will untie Pancho. Oh, Pancho not mind saying Pancho just about scared to death, too. Uh, local man bad enough, but crazy woman. There, there you are, amigo. Now, you can stand up. Gracias, Cisco, gracias. Pancho knows Cisco, fine, Pancho. Pancho, stand up. Here, I'll help you, Chico. Oh, Pancho feel dizzy in the head, Cisco, but Pancho not faint. Oh, no, Pancho not faint, not faint, nothing. Fine. George Pancho fainted, Cisco. <laughs> I guess the happenings of this night were just about too much for Pancho. It was not a very pleasant introduction to the West for you, Senorita. Oh, it's all right now, Cisco. What happened last week seems just like a, a nightmare. But it is in the past now. Yes, I know. And I can't begin to tell you how grateful I am to you. Please do not try. Pancho and I were glad to be of any service we could. Uh, someone would like to show her thanks, Cisco. Gracias. That is very pleasant to hear, senorita. And that someone is Phyllis Mars, Cisco. Oh, gracias. That is even more pleasant. And to show her thanks, she's going to... to si. Stand on her tiptoe. Si. And close her eyes. Well... And then... Oh, Cisco. Oh, senorita. Hey, Pancho. Sometime soon, we ride south to see Pancho's cousin in the low Porfirio, no? See, we can do that, amigo. Well. I would like to see Porfirio again. <laughs> I wonder if he is telling any more of those tall stories these days. Oh, Porfirio, not tell a tall story, Cisco. <laughs> I do not know what else you would call them, Pancho. Porfirio always tells the truth now. Well, that is good. What is Porfirio doing? He got the melon rancho, Cisco. A melon rancho? Si. Oh, that sounds like a good business. Does he grow good melons? Porfirio tells Pancho the soil too good to grow good melons. The soil is too good to grow good melons. That's what Porfirio say. Oh, I do not understand how that could be, Pancho. Porfirio say the vines grow too fast in that soil. Well, then he should have wonderful melons. No, Cisco. Porfirio say the vines grow so fast in that soil... See? ...that vines wear out the melons dragging them around. Oh, Pancho! Oh, Cisco! Oh. <laughs> And so ends another exciting adventure with O. Henry's famous Robin Hood of the West 
The Cisco Kid. to listen again for another thrilling adventure of the Cisco Kid. Cisco Kid was played by Jack Mather, Poncho by Harry Lang. You're the only grown man who's ever cried like a baby on Tooth of Consequences. Stop! Well, then, please, l- l- let me try for the walking man contest. Oh, no, 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 I'm sorry. But I know who the walking man is. It's Martha Graham. Martha Graham was Miss Hush. That contest was over six weeks ago. But I got an old radio. The OTR Now radio program. Welcome back to the OTR Now radio program. Strolling Time was sponsored by the Southern California Dental Offices in Los Angeles. Wade Lane stars as Strolling Tom, who brings you music and poetry to remind you of a happy time. This episode is from April 11th, 1944, Hash on Strolling Tom. Southern California Dental Offices of Dr. Beecham present Strolling Tom. You can smile when you can't say a word. You can smile when you cannot Dental offices of Dr. Beecher presents Stolen Tom. Stolen Tom is heard over this station each night, Tuesday through Friday, as he brings you his songs and homey philosophy. Dr. Beecham's dental offices are located throughout Southern California. At each office, there is a friendly, courteous staff of doctors and nurses on duty to serve you with good dentistry at low cost on liberal, approved credit terms. Dr. Beecham's offices include the large New Hollywood office, corner Hollywood, and Cahuenga Boulevard. The main Dr. Beecham office is at Fifth and Broadway in downtown Los Angeles. Spelled B-E-A-U-C-H-A-M-P. It's Dr. Beecham. And now here he is, everybody's friend, Strolling Tom. Hello, 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 my good friends. This is your old friend, Strolling Tom, greeting you and wishing you the time of day. And the very best at this particular evening hour. And I'll do my best to blaze the trail of light for you with a happy song or two and a bit of philosophy that may help to light the way to greater understanding and at least bring you a little bit of comfort. And speaking of comfort reminds me to thank you, good friends, for the many letters received during my absence and your splendid good wishes. Mighty nice to have a group of friends like you I don't know, of course, how many of you folks are fond of hash. I've heard so many stories about hash houses and boarding houses 
serving hash and all that sort of thing. It's got me kind of mixed up, but to me, some real good homemade hash made from a roast of beef or pork or both suits me right plumb down to the ground. Well, (laughs) we had hash for dinner, as you may well surmise. But that wasn't what I started out to tell you. As I stood and watched the process of making said hash, it put me right back to early boyhood. My mother used to have a great big wooden bowl with a regular two-bladed rocker hash knife. And it was yours truly's job, come what may, to do the hashing. Mother would make me wash nice and clean, which wasn't altogether pleasant to me, and then tuck one of her great big white aprons around my neck, and and then I'd hold the hash bowl in my lap and chop, chop, chop away. (laughs) You know, I always got lots of fun out of it because it was like mixing mortar up to the point where Mother added the onion, and then the fun seemed to cease because the onion chopping always made me cry. (laughs) Oh, my, oh, me. Doesn't it beat the band how many things a mother can find for a fella to do just when he wants to play the most? Never saw the beat of it. making tonight, I I got to thinking about people's lives and how easy it is for people to make hash out of them. Haven't you seen some folks who started out in life with everything in the world in their favor and you just thought, well, now, there's one case where success and happiness is bound to follow. And the first thing you knew news was coming back that so-and-so had hit the skids. And this, that, or the other thing had happened. And things were all broken up. My, oh, me. What a shame. They asked me how I knew my true love was true. Something here inside 
chop it. It's still good eating. And so I say it is with a life. Maybe they did have everything to begin with, and they should have had success and happiness. But just because they got in a hash bowl is no sign they're not good for anything. What if they were cut up and mixed up with all sorts of leftovers? They can still make good. And maybe be the means of pulling the rest of the hash with them out of that terrible mix-up of the leftovers. Where me and my true love were in 
Friday evenings and Sunday morning over another station to talk things over and howdy with you a bit. And I might say that it's a real pleasure to reach you through the sponsorship of Dr. Beecham Dentist again. And it's Strolling Tom's desire to make these little visits so interesting that only a rare instance on your part, dear friend, may prevent our meeting. Have you folks paid a visit to Dr. Beecham's dental offices at 5th and Broadway? If you haven't, do so right away. You'll be more than pleased with his courteous, friendly service. Don't forget to see Dr. Beecham at the corner of 5th and Broadway in downtown Los Angeles or go to Dr. Beecham's branch dental offices all over Southern California. By the way, you Hollywood friends, go and visit that new office, the corner of Coenga, and Hollywood Boulevard. And now, until tomorrow night, we'll say good evening and God's blessing be with you. But in the meantime, don't forget, you can smile when you can't say a word. You can smile. You have been listening to Stolen Tom, brought to you by the Southern California Dental Offices of Dr. Beecham. See Dr. Beecham for good dentistry at low cost on liberal-approved credit terms. Dr. Beecham's offices are located all over Southern California. Addresses include Southwest Los Angeles, Open Evenings, 8658 South Broadway, Huntington Park, 6334 and a half Pacific Boulevard, Hollywood, Open Evenings, Corner Coenga and Hollywood Boulevard, Long Beach, 410 Pine Avenue. The main Dr. Beecham office is at 5th and Broadway in downtown Los Angeles. Spelled B-E-A-U-C-H-A-M-P, pronounced Dr. Beecham. Stolen Tom comes to you each Tuesday through Friday at this same time. Also, Strollin' Tom is heard Sunday morning over another station at 8.30 a.m. Now, until tomorrow night, a very pleasant good evening to you all.
Oh, we've got a budget that's so nice and low, nice and low, nice and low. Listen, Mr. Sponsor, to a fresh new radio show. The OTR Now radio program. Welcome back to the OTR Now radio program. Now we're going to listen to a classic. We all know about Bob Hope. We've talked about Bob Hope before. This episode's from October 19th, 1948. Bob's Advertising Agency on the OTR Now radio program. Well, I swan. Me too. So do I. How about you? Yes, it's the new Swan Show with our great singing star, Doris Day. Well, I swan. A new discovery, Bill Farrell. How do you do? The four hits and a miss, the president of the Cleveland Indians ball team, Bill Beck, and the new Les Brown Band. We use Swan exclusively, how about you? Yes, how about you? Who, me? My name is Robert Swansea Hope. And now, Bob Hope, Swan's Eye View of the News. New York, New York. This week, a board of artists selected as the five most virile-looking men in the country, Clark Gable, Victor Mature, Lou Boudreaux, Governor Earl Warren, and radio singer Jack Smith. Of course, you can see they made a terrible mistake. (laughs) I don't know how... I don't know how they picked that Gable over me. His chest measures 42 inches. I've got the same measurement, and besides, he can't take his off. And Jack Smith was picked. He has a smile in his voice. You know how he gets that giggly effect, don't you? He's the only singer who wears a turtleneck sweater with live turtles. <laughs> of course, this isn't the first time Lou Boudreau has won a contest. After the World Series, the girls at Cleveland voted him the man they would most like to slide into home with. Detroit, Michigan. The nation's car owners were getting their first look into the future this week as the new 1949 models started rolling off the assembly line. Yeah, those new cars are really low slung. One driver on Sunset Boulevard looked back, saw a pedestrian still standing and said, Just my luck, I have to pick a bow-legged one. (laughs) And And there's so many automatic gadgets on those new autos. They're almost human. One of them is wonderful. When you see a woman driver coming your way, you press a button, the whole car folds up into a submarine and dives into the nearest manhole. <laughs> but those new midget cars are very practical. When the engine starts missing, you don't need a mechanic. You just throw it over your shoulder and burp it. Los Angeles, California. It's top hat, white tie, and tails for music lovers here tonight as the curtain rises on the 1948 opera season at the Shrine Auditorium. Opera, that's a chorus of 25 arguing with F.E. Boone over who's first again with Spaghetti Men. (laughs) Boy, was that opera opening a ritzy affair. All the women came dressed in their best furs. I heard one mink coat say to another, Don't turn your nose up at me. I knew you when you were eating lettuce in the San Fernando Valley. (laughs) I caused quite a sensation with the outfit I was wearing. I don't know why I was only wearing a cutaway coat, but I didn't know you weren't supposed to wear cutaway pants. <laughs> it was the first time anybody ever saw shorts made out of swan wrappers. <laughs> and boy, was that opera house really jammed with people. I wondered why it kept snowing in the second act of Il Travatore, then I found out I was watching it through the popcorn machine in the lobby. <laughs> Paris, France, the Security Council of the U.N. returned to normal this week as, after ten days of sulking, 
Andrei Vyshinsky finally broke his campaign of silence. Don't think it was easy for Vyshinsky to keep the silence. For ten days, he had to quit eating borscht. <laughs> Imagine Vyshinsky going to the U.N. and not talking. That's like Artie Shaw going to a wedding and being best man. <laughs> and the Russians... The Russians say they can't do anything until they get international cooperation. International cooperation. That show us how to make the atom bomb, and we'll show you where New York City used to be. <laughs> Thank you. Say hi. Fly the lungs. It's time to sell the stuff. Uh, sorry, Bob. I'm just not up to it tonight. I, I, I can't do it. Hi. The Lieber brothers have turned up their ear trumpets. They're waiting. <laughs> well, I... I'm afraid not, Bob. It's, it's impossible. You better force yourself or you'll be back at your old job rolling bandages for young Dr. Christian. <laughs> Come on, make with a pitch high. Oh, Gatry, if, if only I could. If only I could tell the folks about the beauty of a bar of mild, pure swan floating majestically in the kitchen sink. But, but when I try the vision of those velvet, rich, creamy suds, those, those suds that are so kind to your hands, why, it leaves me speechless. I, I just can't say a word. I'd swear I heard something. <laughs> Maybe it was just the rustle of his taffeta waistcoat. Well, don't. Don't mock me, Robert. I'm trying. Get how I'm trying. I long to tell the people that Swan gets dishes done quicker because those glamorous, beautiful Swan suds rinse away so completely, you don't have to do anything. You know, folks, you could avoid all this if you just go out and buy the stuff. <laughs> I long to tell them that Swan lasts longer because it's firmer, that it washes more dishes per penny. But then I come to that line, that lovely, poetic line. Swan is made by a modern pop patented process that no other... Well, it's lovely and poetic, a patented process that no other soap can use. I don't bother you, do I, Daddy? <laughs> You know, Bob, that does it to me. Why, it's like it's like an ode from Keats, a sonnet from Shelley. Sounds more like a plug from Lieber, brother. <laughs> Inside, my heart is crying. Use half in the kitchen, half in the bath, and you'll find that Swan is the best soap afloat. But I can't say it, Bob. I, I can't say it. And so, Bob... Yes, hi. There will be no commercial. <laughs> Tune in next week, folks. There'll be no high ever back. <laughs> well, I swan. Gee whiz! That's, That's right. right. I right. crack it. Here's our junior baritone, Bill Farrell, biting into the hit parade with Maybe You'll Be There. Enter, Bill. Each time I see a crowd of people just like a fool, I stop and stare. It's really not the proper thing to do. But maybe you'll be there. I go out walking after midnight along the lonely thoroughfare. It's not the time or place to look for you, but maybe you'll be there. You said your arms 
could always hold me. You said your lips were mine alone to kiss. Now after all those things you told me, how can it end like this? Someday for my prayers are answered. I'll hear a footstep on the stairs. With anxious heart, I'll hurry to the door. And maybe you'll be Look out. Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis will be with us. Well, folks, you've all heard the old saying, it pays to advertise. And we've often wondered what it would be like if a presidential candidate's campaign was handled by an advertising agency. So let's look in on one of the country's biggest advertising geniuses. Good morning, IQ. Don't waste time on words, Miss Wilson. I'm a busy man. Have to go up and do the skywriting myself this morning. Can't trust those skywriters. Yes, I noticed yesterday in the Pepsi-Cola ads there was a hyphen between every letter. I know. The pilot was drunk and he got the hiccups. <laughs> I have to do everything myself. Gee, just look at your plane out there, Chief. It's got bullet holes in it. Yeah, I got caught in the airlift over Glendale. <laughs> I have to do everything myself. Is that what made you so late, boss? Well, I was part of it. I had to stop at the hospital and send some, spend some time in the maternity ward. <laughs> oh, is your wife there? No, she couldn't make it. I have to do everything myself. I tell you... <laughs> <laughs> Incidentally, Miss Wilson, ring for the song team I hired to write advertising jingles. Okay. Did, Did you, you call, call for us, Chief? Yeah. <laughs> yes, have you finished that jingle about old stepmother's whiskey? We sure did, IQ. Now just listen to this. Old stepmother bourbon is just the thing for a whiskey fizz. Drink a quart when you feel sad. Drink two quarts and you'll drop dead. Back in the dungeon. That ought to get about 500 new members for Alcoholics Anonymous. I'll send for you later. Right. Oh, Chief, there's a gentleman waiting in the lobby to see you. He says his name is Faultless J. Quink. Faultless J. Quink. Well, that's the man I've been expecting. His party has paid us $50,000 to handle his campaign for the presidency. Show him right in and leave us alone. Right this way. How do you do, sir? I presume you're the advertising wizard like you hope. That's right. Glad to meet you, Mr. Quink. And I might say that you look like real presidential timber. Oh, I'm not Quink. I'm Murphy, his campaign manager. This is our candidate right here. Pleased to meet you. Is there a party for a candidate like that? <laughs> Mr. Murphy said you can get me a lot of votes, Mr. Hope. He said that you could get me plenty of support on November 4th. Yeah, but what's going to hold you up till then? <laughs> now, let's get started on this campaign. We've got to make Faultless Quink look like a typical candidate. Quink, can you raise a mustache? Well, I raised one once, but I had to shave it off. It made me lose my balance. <laughs> Well, IQ never gives up. Maybe you can still look like a candidate. You got any glasses? I thought you'd have the glasses. I brought the booze. Uh, 
I mean, you don't have to worry about Faultless Jake Wink. His record is clean. Tell her about yourself, Faultless. When you were a boy, didn't your mother want you to grow up and be president? She wasn't sure I'd grow up. <laughs> well, we're not getting started in this campaign any too soon. The opposition is pouring a steady stream of propaganda over the radio. I'll switch it on and show you. The following is a political announcement paid for by the Republican Party. Why, I'll vote Republican. He's got good looks and a lot of dash. I'd like to kiss him on his cute mustache. Tickle, 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 tickle. There, you see? But don't worry about it. I've already got my boys working on some hot copy for our client. Now, Quink, is there anything in your background the opposition may use against you? Did you ever do anything you were ashamed of? Well, yes, there is. What is it? Well, I never told anybody before. Come on, Quink. Now, what did you do? Well, I hate to admit it, but when I was young, I used to sneak into the campfire girls' headquarters and let the air out of their marshmallows. Well, you caught yourself just in time. That's how Humphrey Bogart got started. <laughs> Murphy just put down that our candidate is in favor of deflation. By the way, Ike, you, how are we going to get that southern vote? I'll figure out something. Quink, you got any relatives in the south? Well, I used to have an uncle in Kentucky. That's great stuff. Mark it down, Murphy. Just think of it. He's got an uncle who's one of the first to find old Kentucky colonels, a pillar in his community, a citizen who was both trustworthy and honest. He was a horse thief, and they hung him to the highest tree in the town. <laughs> Climb to the highest tree of town. What'll I write down, IQ? Just say that everybody looked up to him. <laughs> now, the next thing we'll do... Hi, Chief. We got it. We got it. The campaign song for Faultless Quink. Is it good? It's great. And you know what, Chief? We tied it up with the names of all the products you advertise. Oh, good. Let's hear it. If you want the country cleaned up, cast your vote for Faultless Quink. He's a cleaning up experience using Drano in his sink. He dresses in the latest fashion, arrow shirts and things like that. Even when he takes a bath, he always wears an Adam hat. I'll take it. He uses tums and also scents and shaves his legs with an ever sharp shick. He could never be offensive because he gargles with their wick. That's wink. Miss Doris Day with one of her favorites, written by Les Brown, Sentimental Journey. Miss Doris Day, ladies Gonna take a sentimental journey. Gonna set my heart at ease. I'm gonna make a sentimental journey to I've got my bag, got my reservation Spent each dime I could afford Like a child in wild anticipation I long to hear that all aboard Seven, Seven. that's the time we leave Could be so yearning. Now, why did I 
Doris. Oh, thank you, Bob. Say, I haven't seen you since you took me to the Los Angeles Dons football game Friday night. Yeah, it was great. Say, I hear High Everback was wonderful announcing the game. Oh, gee, I wish I could have heard it. Well, I just happen to have a record of the broadcast with me. Doris, uh, would you like to hear it? Oh, wonderful, High. Play it for me. Okay. What a game. The score is tied. Just a few seconds left in the fourth quarter, and the L.A. Dons are on the Baltimore Five. It's fourth down and goal to go. The ball is snapped and Dobbs crashes through center. There's a terrific pileup on the goal line. And there's the referee's whistle. Is it a touchdown? The referee raises his hand. What a thrilling moment. You've never seen such soft, white hands before. You can tell he uses swans. Take it easy, folks. Either we sell it this way or I have to spend Saturdays in Thrifty's window scrubbing Sydney Green Street's back. All right, let's get back to the game. Did they score? Of course, Bob. Swan always scores. Isn't he sneaky? <laughs> Just try Swan in the bathroom and see how the family goes for those rich, creamy suds. See how wonderful your skin feels after a Swan bath. And there's none of that unpleasant, taut, soapy feeling because Swan rinses away rapidly and completely. You're telling me I tried it last night and it took me five minutes to climb back out of the drain. <laughs> so don't forget, folks... Don't forget, whether you've got your eye on the scoreboard or the washboard, you'll find Swan is a winner every time. Use half in the kitchen, half in the bath. Wherever you use it, Swan is the best soap afloat. Well, I swan. Me too. Gee whiz. That's right. Bye, Cracky. Went down to Virginia. No one sent for me. Went down to Virginia to see what I could see. And well, he found the horses fastest and the gals the best, and the spirits of the state are guaranteed high test. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Gee, I'm glad I came down to Virginia. This nice little southern town, too. There's the village square, there's the courthouse, and there in front of the courthouse is a statue of a real southern hero, Phil Harris. Took cement to make him stand up. <laughs> Boy, here comes a real Virginia bell. I think I'll try out this southern hospitality. I beg your pardon, miss. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm a stranger here in town. I come from up north. Up north? up. No, Cleveland. That's right next to Shonuff. You see, miss, I don't know many people in town. I thought maybe we could get acquainted. Well, I don't usually talk to strange men unless they talk to me first. Oh, but oh, but anyway, my name is Doris, Ellie Mae, Barbara, Jean, Margaret, Lee, Marsha, Peggy, Ann, Susan, Beauregard. I'll just call you We the People for short. <laughs> well, well, what's your name, Sugarfoot? <laughs> 
Robert, but you can call me what my friends call me. What do your friends call you? Robert, I've got very dull friends. <laughs> well, now, I do declare, honey, you're the cutest little old boy I ever laid my eyes on. Oh, well, say, it's lower. Well, well, tell me, honey bun, are there any more up north like you? No, after they made me, Russia stole the plans. <laughs> Down to Virginia and didn't know a soul. No wonder folks befriend you, their hearts are made of gold. Well, and the civic minded citizens are all so kind to see to it you hook a fish in every line. Mm-hmm. Gee, Doris, <laughs> we've been going together for quite a while now. When are you going to ask your father when we can get married? Well, now, you know how Daddy hates northerners. Well, I'm not afraid of your father. I'll meet him face to face, and I'll get out face to face, and I'll get us... <laughs> I'll meet him that way, too, if you don't mind. And I'll get his permission to marry. Oh, my stars. Won't it just be wonderful when we get married, and, and you all come home from work, and I've got the chitlins waiting for you? Oh, by the way, darling, do you like chitlins? Yeah, I'm crazy about chitlins. I hope her first one's a boy. <laughs> So he stayed down in Virginia That's how much he'd been sold So blessed the day that brought me here And blessed the folks I love so dear Oh, hello, Daddy Look what I brought home with me What's the matter with you, daughter? Ain't we got enough bold weevils around the place now? Weevil, Daddy. This is Robert. How do, boy? <laughs> Say, uh, I hope you ain't a northerner. Well, I... The last time I caught a northerner on my property, I whipped him till he was a cherry red. Then I chopped him up in little pieces and fed him to my hound dog. Where'd you say you was from, boy? Oh, black-eyed peas and candy, yams, and that's what I like about that. <laughs> Go ahead, Robert. Go on, Robert. Put the question to him. Okay, so, as you know, I've been sparking your daughter for quite some time now. You... You really stuck on her, eh, boy? Colonel, to me, she's just as pretty as a baby ham hanging on a hook in the smokehouse. <laughs> and, daughter, are you gone on Colonel Hope? To me, he's just a vanilla-flavored, sweet molasses-covered, sugar-coated honey boy. Please, you make me feel like one of Cougat's nougat. Well, Piers, like there's going to be a wedding. <laughs> Doris, I wish your mother could be alive to see her beautiful, blonde, blue-eyed daughter getting married. Tell me, did Doris look like her mother, Colonel? Shucks, no. Her mother was the ugliest old bat in Virginia. <laughs> That woman's face was so ugly, she had to wear a bonnet with slats. <laughs> Boy, she was triple ugly. <laughs> no man in the whole state would come near her. Well, how'd you come to marry her? Oh, I don't know. Just lucky, I guess. <laughs> well, good luck, children. And it's stay down in Virginia, Virginia.
here right now, folks. It's a pleasure to introduce a man who brought showmanship to big-time baseball. A guy who, in a great measure, was responsible for bringing the world's baseball crown to Cleveland. The former fighting Marine and now president of the Cleveland Indians Baseball Club, Mr. Bill Veck, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks a lot, Bob. Certainly a pleasure to be here. Well, it's good to have you, Bill. You know, I've been sitting over here watching the show. You've got a lot of rackets, haven't you? Well, don't look at it that way. Let's get down to business. Did you bring my share with you? <laughs> huh? Bob, take it a little easy. You know, we haven't counted all that dough yet. <laughs> There's a lot there to count to. I wish I could help you. But look at Bill. Seriously, with me, money is secondary. The thing that matters with me is sentiment. You see, I have a great fondness for the city of Cleveland. After all, I grew up there, and I love that town. That's a wonderful attitude, Bob. Of course, I had a check here for several thousand dollars, but uh, because of your attachment to Cleveland, you won't want it. Shake hands with a tourist. <laughs> but seriously, Bill, it's swell having you here. We both have so much in common. For instance... We're both big men in the sports world, aren't we? Well, we're both big men. Well, we're both men. Call for Philip Morris! But I hope you appreciate the great moral support I gave the Indians when I was back there for the series. Moral support? Bob, you really embarrassed us back there. How? Well, whenever Lou Boudreau sent a player to the showers, he looked so silly, run along behind him, yelling, Use swan, you get more bubbles. <laughs> yeah, and I had to run in for my free seat in the bleach. I mean, my seat in the bleachers. What about? <laughs> I had to run in for my seat in the bleachers to do it. Bob, you had a real good seat. Right at the north end of the stadium. Yeah, it was north, all right. It was so far north, there were two people next to me wearing fur coats and rubbing noses. <laughs> and a guy kept coming around selling hot blubber on a roll. <laughs> Gotta keep your family working some way. <laughs> what do you do, write stuff on the plane? What are you doing? Well, I want you to know that I was ready to get in the game anytime you wanted me, Bill. Of course, you know I'm an all-round athlete. Bob, I could tell you were an athlete the first time I laid eyes on you. Just take a look at those big, broad shoulders. The tremendous chest. And lean, hard stomach and the bulging biceps. Honest, Bill? <laughs> Truly. I have so much more than gorgeous, George. Why should I fight it? <laughs> But you know, Bill, around Cleveland, they tell me that you seldom wear a tie. Is that right? That's right, Bob. And after that tie of the right socks, I'll guarantee I'll never wear one. <laughs> that was rough. I don't blame you. That American League playoff left me a nervous wreck, too. I chewed my fingernails all the way down to my wristwatch. <laughs> but seriously, Bill, everybody from the Cleveland Bat Boy to the President of the United States admires the job you've done. In two years, you built the team that's given Cleveland its first World Series victory in 28 years. Thanks a million, Bob. We're going to try to hit the World Series jackpot again in 1949. If we miss it in 49, we'll try again in 1950. If we miss it in 50, we'll try again in 51. Would anybody in Boston like to try for 64? <laughs> Apparently, Bill, you don't get morbid when your team loses. 
Well, don't get me wrong, Bob. We, of course, love to win. But win or lose, we try to set a good example for the millions of kids who play America's number one sport on the nation's sandlots. On some one of those sandlots, there's maybe a 12-year-old version of Bob Feller or Satchel Paige or even Lou Boudreau, maybe even another Babe Ruth. And if we can earn a soft spot uh, in the hearts of those kids, we, we really don't care who, who wins the World Series. Good night, Bob. Good night, Bill. Good night, folks. Thank you. Thank you very much. memory of the community chest once more with a plea we can't ignore each check that sent will be well spent for the old, the young, the poor we thank, we thank you, you so much next week ladies and gentlemen we welcome those two young comedians from Night Spots Theaters and Radio really the sensation of the past year the team of Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis ladies and gentlemen come in boys thank you very much we'll be back tonight ladies and gentlemen Mirror, mirror on the wall is my hair fairest of them all. It is when you use Rave Cream Shampoo. Rave leaves your hair so clean, so soft, so easy to manage. Easy to manage because the pure lanolin in Rave is specially blended with other ingredients to make hair behave, even on shampoo day. Try Rave Cream Shampoo, now sold at new low prices. R-A-Y-V-E. Rave Cream Shampoo. From Hollywood, California, Swan Soap, another fine product of Lieber Brothers Company, has presented the Bob Hope Show with Bill Veek, Doris Day, Bill Farrell, Les Brown and his orchestra, and yours truly, Hi Everbank. Be sure to listen to Fiddle McGee and Molly, which follows immediately on most of these pages. This is NBC, the national broadcasting company. KFI, Los Angeles, Earl C. Anthony, Incorporated. Between the acts of a radio show, it's customary to tell the listening audience a few facts about the sponsor and the product. In other words, the sales message comes here. Well, we don't have a sales message except this one. You're listening to the OTR Now radio program. We hope you'll take the following points into consideration when you consider spending your dollars on a radio program. Budgeted sensibly. You can afford it. Well, it's not a darn fool talking on the radio already. I guess one more won't hurt. <laughs> As you know, you're listening to the OTR Now radio program. Let's do some drama here. Let's listen to Curtain Time. This episode's from April 17, 1948. Miss Snoring Sleepwalker. This program was sponsored by Mars Candy, and this story is a light comedy about a woman who wins a Hollywood movie contract. It stars George Caesar and Sidney Elstrom. Myron Wallace alias Mike Wallace, is the commercial spokesman. Mars Incorporated, makers of America's most enjoyable candy bars, presents... Curtain Time! The makers of the big new Mars bar welcome you to Curtain Time. 
In spite of April showers, the lobby is packed with theatergoers. And here, eager for the new play, is the well-known man about town, your host, Patrick Allen. Good evening. Well, Mr. Allen, what's in store for us tonight? A romantic comedy, Myron, with a brand new angle. But there's the overture, so we'd better hurry inside the theater for tonight's production of Curtain Time. Tickets, please. Thank you, sir. Seventh row center. Seats seven and eight. Thank you. Well, we can't ask for better seats than these. But it's nearly time for the play, so let's glance through the program. Harry Elders and Nanette Sargent, supported by the Curtain Time players, are starred tonight in Miss Snoring Sleepwalker by Edna McGregor. Mr. Elders plays the part of Tom Perkins, and Miss Sargent is heard in the role of Millie Drake. Curtain Time! There's the call for the first act of Miss Snoring Sleepwalker. The scene is the modest living room of the Drake home in Middle City. Mrs. Drake, a widow, and her daughter Millie are quite excited at the moment because Tom Perkins, Millie's fiancé, has just come in. And he's excited, too. Why, Tom, you look as though you just inherited a million dollars. Oh, Tom, what is it? Did you buy a new car for a honeymoon trip? No, Millie. Oh, dear. I showed you the statistical curves on automobile maintenance. We can run the old bus for another year before repair costs make it economical to buy a new one. But, darling, what is your surprise? Don't tell me you dug up a new statistic. I sure did. But what is it? Sweetheart, next Saturday after our wedding, you and I are going to be sitting on top of the world. Tom, have you inherited some money? Nope, but I've been doing a lot of thinking, Mrs. Drake. So I prepared a chart. Really? Yes, and I took that chart in to Mr. Proudhuffer this afternoon and said, Mr. Proudhuffer, as cashier of your bank, do I have above average responsibility or don't I? Oh, Tom, of course you do. Why, sure, he had to admit it, too. So I said, well, Mr. Proudhuffer, if I have above-average responsibility, I should be making above-average wages, shouldn't I? Hmm, I'll bet Wilbur Proudhuffer never agreed to that one. No? <laughs> well, Mrs. Drake, my chart showed that the average white-collar family head in the United States makes $50 a week. Tom, you don't mean you got a $10 raise. Better than that, 15 Oh, Tom, I'm so proud of you. <laughs> If you just wouldn't talk statistics all the time. Oh, but honey, it's statistics that got me this $15 a week raise. Oh, well, that's true. Now, but... my dear, every man has a hobby. Your father collected paper match covers. And I must say they never got him a $15 a week raise. Oh, but I'm so sick of statistics, I could... Oh, there's a phone. I'll bet it's Mrs. Simpson calling about your traveling suit. Hello? Hello? This is Hollywood calling Miss Mildred Drake. Hollywood calling Miss Mildred. Hollywood? Oh, oh, Mother, give me that phone. But Millie... I'm sure it's Jeff Shane. Uh, Tom, turn on the Jeff Shane radio program. Hurry. Uh, hello? 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 Is this Miss Mildred Drake? Uh, yes. Yes, this is Mildred Drake. Miss Drake, this is Jeff Shane. Uh, yes? Your entry has been selected as the best letter this week in our snoring sleepwalker contest. Oh, gee. Our prizes this week have reached a total of $60,000 in a six-month contract with United Pictures. I, I, I know, Mr. Shane. Now, Miss Drake, you're entitled to one and only one answer. Who is the snoring sleepwalker? Uh, the... Mickey Mouse? Miss Drake, that is absolutely correct! You... you mean I... 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 Oh, Millie, you... Miss Drake, Miss Drake, are you there? Uh, Mrs. Drake, she's fainted. Quick, do something. Tom, give me the phone. Uh, Mrs. Drake, Millie's fainted and I'm going to get her a glass of water. Miss Drake, 
Miss Drake. Mr. Shane, this is Millie's mother. The poor dear fainted and... Folks, I'm talking to the girl's mother now. The girl's fainted. Isn't that wonderful? Stand back, Mrs. Drake. I don't want to splash any of this water on you. <coughs> Millie. Millie, are you all right? Are you all right? Oh, Tom, I... I don't know. I'm so... Oh, Mother! Mother, give me that phone. You let me handle this, Millie. Uh, hello, Mr. Shane. This is Mildred Drake. I, I'm all right now. Fine, Miss Drake, fine. Can you and your mother leave tomorrow morning for Hollywood and be my guest for the next two weeks while we're making arrangements to start your movie career? Tomorrow morning? Why, yeah. Millie, for Pete's sake, we're being married Saturday. There's nothing to worry about, Miss Drake. We'll get complete new wardrobes both for you and your mother the minute you step off the train. Millie, you can't do a thing like this. Well, I... Well, you see, I... Great, everything's set, so I'll just say goodbye until I meet you at the railroad station. Goodbye. Gosh, he's still on the radio. Oh, I wish you could have heard that girl's voice, but she thrilled my... Tom, turn that radio back on. Nothing doing. We're going to have some things understood right now. Now, Tom, please don't be unreasonable. Is it unreasonable that I don't want you to walk out on our wedding? But our wedding can wait a couple of weeks in a case like this. I should say it can. It isn't every day a girl wins $60,000 worth of prizes. I don't care. If you think Billy? you... I just happened to think... Oh, what is it, Mother? You'll have to put the wedding off six months. Now, you see here... But, Tom, you've forgotten about the movie contract. What? Why, that's right. And it's for six months. Well, just the same. My little girl has a chance to be a movie star. Look, honey, just because you were lucky enough to win all that I stuff... I wasn't just lucky. I won because I gave the right answer. Millie, there were over three million entries in that contest, with three letters a week selected and every answer nothing but a wild guess. Oh, I see. When you talk your boss into a $15 a week raise, that's brave. Well... But when I win $60,000 in a movie contract, it's luck. The looks, sweetheart. And I'm also not attractive enough to have a chance in the movie? As far as I'm concerned, darling, you're the most beautiful girl in the world. But look at the statistics on Hollywood. Now, Tom, The it's... place is full of beautiful girls, and some of them prettier than you are. Thomas Perkins, you better be careful how you... Millie, Millie, I love you. Our wedding plans are all set, and... And the idea of your being in the movies is ridiculous. Is that so? Well, apparently I'm finding out what you think of me just in time. Oh, but honey... If I'm not smart enough or attractive enough... Oh, my goodness, oh. I wonder who... Oh, Millie, half the town is here. Oh, dear. Oh, hey, Miss Millie, come out on the porch and wave to everybody. Mrs. Drake, Millie and I have to settle this first. Now, see here, Tom, if you Just think... a second, Millie. I think you're smart and attractive, too, but... Well, thank you. But last year, the average girl trying to break into the movies... I guess that's all I am to you. Just an average girl. Just another statistic. Oh, but that's not what I meant. Tom, my friends are waiting out there to congratulate me. They're happy that I've won an opportunity to be somebody. I want you to be Mrs. Thomas Perkins. And I don't want to be shoved around. Statistics show that nearly 60% of divorces are due to... Tom, we are not going to get divorced because we are not going to get married. Oh, Millie, come on out here. The photographer from the Daily Argus is here. Uh, he wants you too, Tom. You tell him he... Right can... over here, Pop. Let's have a nice clinch for tomorrow's paper. Huh? Nothing doing. Now, Tom, please don't make a scene in front of all these people. I said no, Millie. Oh, but ain't you the boyfriend? No, I'm not. I'm the sap who thought our marriage was more important than a free trip to Hollywood. What? Perkins, I ought to slap your face. Go ahead. That won't hurt me as much as... Wow! What a picture! Come on, sister. Slap him again. The Curtain Falls on the first act of my Curtain Time play, starring Harry Elders and Nanette Sargent. And now, Myron Wallace. Enjoying tonight's play, Pat? I certainly am, Myron. 
Isn't it strange when you stop to think of it, how different people look for different things in a play or a book? Yes, it is. But of course, that's not true of a candy bar. Everyone wants a candy bar to taste good. That's why candy lovers all over the country consider the big new 10-cent Mars bar a very special candy treat. For in a Mars bar, you enjoy the rare flavor combination of a thick milk chocolate coating, of the finest pure milk chocolate, heaped extra high and packed with crunchy, fresh, whole toasted almonds, all over a soft, snow-white nougat center that is creamy, rich, and smooth. Here is truly one of the greatest of candy triumphs. For the finest quality candy bar of them all, just try a Mars bar. There's the call for the second act of This Morning Sleepwalker, brought to you by the makers of the big new Mars Bar. When Millie Drake won the Snoring Sleepwalker contest, she won $60,000 and a Hollywood movie contract. But she lost Tom Perkins, her fiancé. Well, Millie went to Hollywood and Tom stayed on at the bank where he's cashier. In fact, that's where he is right now. Tom is just entering the office of Wilbur Proudhoffer, president of the bank. You, uh, you sent for me, Mr. Proudhoffer? Yes, Tom. Come in. Uh, yes, sir. If it's about that 14-cent error in my report, I can explain Sit how... down. Yes, Mr. Proudhofer. I suppose you can also explain about that picture in the morning daily Argus? Well, uh, gee, I, I'm, I'm sorry, Mr. Proudhofer. I, I understand about the dignity of the bank. Nonsense. Huh? You're a smart boy in some ways, Tom, but you think the banking business is just a lot of assets and liabilities, compound interest, and first mortgages. Well, uh... That's uh... poppycock. Banking's a business that deals with people. With human beings. Oh, sure, but... And if you're going to deal with human beings, you've got to be human yourself. Uh, I'm afraid I don't understand. Young man, human beings take chances. Well, I suppose so. But you're too cautious to take a chance. Well, uh... You're so careful, you would never dream of walking out on your job and following Millie Drake to Hollywood. Oh, but it's up to her to come back. Well, she'll never come back. Not if she has as much pride as I think she has. You've got to go after her. Well, thanks for the advice. Tom, I called you in here to fire you. To to fire me? Yes. Oh, but Mr. Proudhofer, I promise never to make another mistake. I'll also keep my name out of the papers. Tom, you're fired. With three months pay. Oh, but Mr. Proudhofer... And you can have your job back whenever you convince me you know how to handle people. Well, that's swell, And the only way you can convince me is to marry Millie Drake. But I've always done a good job. I've... Say, wait a minute. Well, uh, my time is pretty valuable. Mr. Proudhuffer, you've got something there. Well, of course I have. I'm going out to Hollywood and bring Millie back if I have to... uh, If I have to... If you have to... uh, To what? uh, I don't know, but whatever it is, I'm going to do it. Look, B.T., maybe if I put it this way... You look, Jeff. We agreed that the contest winner was to get a bit part in the picture we're making based on the Def Sane radio show. That's right. Well, the contract states that she's to play a part of herself, and that's all. But, B.T., this girl's got looks and a good voice. What's more, she's the lucky kid everybody would like to be. They'll tear down the theaters to see her. And I suppose winning your contest makes her an actress? Look, there's an ingenue part in this picture that any girl could play. All she has to do is look sweet and innocent. Uh... 
Are you planning on marrying the girl, Jeff? Well, uh, I can think of worse ideas. But this is strictly business. BT, your studio has a reputation for finding new talent. Well, this is your chance to prove that United Pictures can make an absolute unknown into a star in one picture. Uh, you got an angle there at that, Jeff. Maybe I'll try it. Just to prove to myself how good I am. Millie, you poor child, you look all in. Oh, I guess I am, Mother. Did anything go wrong at the studio? No. Was there any mail today from Tom? Not only no letter from him, my dear, but the letter you sent him came back. It came back? Where is it? Right here. And look at the way it's marked. Moved. Left no forwarding address. Oh, no. Oh, Millie, when I think how lucky you are that you didn't marry him. A man who didn't have enough consideration even to come to the train to see you off. Tom was hurt, Mother, and he had a right to be. Oh, nonsense. It is not. I called off the wedding as if it were nothing but a casual date. Millie, you've got to quit mooning over Tom. He's not worth it. That's not so. But you have a chance to be a movie star. Mother, the studio's just giving me a chance to do a part, not to be a star. Oh, but you will be. And you've got Jeff Shane following you around like a lovesick schoolboy. Tell me, dear, has Jeff proposed to you yet? I, I'd rather not talk about it. I'll bet he has. And you haven't told me about it. Me, your own mother. Well, he hasn't said anything definite, and I, I don't know what I'll do if he does. Millie Drake, if you throw away a chance like that, you'll never forgive yourself. But, Mother, he hasn't really proposed. Well, in that case, Millie, you see that Jeff does propose. And that you say yes. Just a minute, just a minute, buddy. Where do you think you're going? Why, uh, isn't this Mr. B.T. Lansing's office? Yeah. And I suppose you got an appointment with him. Why, uh... No, not exactly. You think you can just walk in and talk to the head guy in a studio like United Pictures without no appointment? Why, uh, I didn't know, and this is important. Sure, it's always important. Now get lost, will you? He don't cast actors anyway. But I'm not an actor. You see, I just got in from the East. From the East? Yes, uh, I'm a banker, and... uh... A banker? Oh, excuse me, mister. You wait right here. He'll see you right away. Yes, sir. Louie, don't bust in on me like that. I was just getting ready for a nap. But, boss, boss. I was up half the night in my head. But, boss, uh, there's an eastern banker outside. Uh, uh, are you stupid fool? Send him in. Okay, boss, right away. It's not enough that I lost $200 last night playing gin rummy. I've got to have eastern bankers on my neck. Oh, oh uh, uh, how, how do you do, sir? Come in, come in. Uh, have a chair. Why, uh, uh, thank you. My name's Perkins, Thomas Perkins. Of course, of course. I've heard some very nice things about you, Mr. Perkins. You, you have? Yes, indeed. <laughs> the bankers in the East are our backers, and I, well, I keep in touch. <laughs> what do they want now? Why, uh, I, uh, I hoped I could sell you on an idea for saving a lot of money, Mr. Lansing. Well, now, we're always interested in saving money. Mr. Lansing, your studio uses a lot of new talent in its pictures, doesn't it? Why, uh, yes. And some of your discoveries have succeeded, while others have failed. Well, naturally. Well, Mr. Lansing, my idea is to find out what the public will think of your new discoveries before you spend any money on them. Oh, but that's impossible. Oh, no, it isn't. 
The minute movie fans see a new face, they form likes and dislikes that never change. Well... If the public says no on a new actor, you've thrown your money away. But even the bankers can't change that. But research can, Mr. Lansing. Research? Yes. We can make a cross-section survey of public opinion on a new performer's personality before you ever give him a part. You can? How? By showing people photographs of the would-be star. In that way, you know how a new actor will strike the public before you ever spend a dime. You know, Mr. Perkins, I think you and I have an idea there that may revolutionize the industry. Of course. And you can tell your bankers that I'm always ready to listen to a good, sensible suggestion. Thank you, Mr. Now, what's more, Mr. Perkins, hmm? if they let you take the time, I'd like you to get this idea started. Well, I'd be glad to. Uh, I'll give you a letter to the head of the research department. Fine. Uh, um, um, just one more thing. Yes? In order to keep the people here in the studio from getting jealous of each other, uh, all new ideas are always mine. You understand? Oh, perfectly, Mr. Lansing. Uh, as a matter of fact, the less publicity I get, the better I like it. Then we're agreed? Let's keep the whole plan a secret until we're ready to announce the results. Mr. Perkins, we've got a secret. <laughs> bring you the third act of tonight's Curtain Time play starring Harry Elders and Nanette Sargent. Here is Myron Wallace. Now that spring is really here, there are many times when you may be looking for some little treat that the whole family can enjoy together. A treat like the delightful taste treat of the big new 10-cent Mars bar, for example. For a Mars bar is one of those rare little pleasures that the whole family can enjoy, boys and girls and adults alike. With each bite of Mars, the toasted almond bar, your teeth sink through an extra-thick pure milk chocolate coating. And nestled in the chocolate, crunchy, fresh, whole toasted almonds, all over a soft, snow-white nougat center that is creamy, rich, and smooth. Together, the milk chocolate, crisp almonds, and soft nougat make every bite of a Mars bar a taste of candy at its finest. For the finest quality candy bar of them all, just try a Mars bar. Curtain time! There's the call for the third act of Miss Loring Sleepwalker. Brought to you by the makers of the big new Mars bar. After winning the Snoring Sleepwalker contest, Millie Drake went to Hollywood, and Tom Perkins followed her there. Although he hasn't seen her, Tom has seen B.T. Lansing, the movie mogul, and told him about his plan for pre-testing stars. Well, at the moment, however, Millie sits in a big, sleek sports roadster. It's night, and a car purrs slowly down Laurel Canyon. The driver is Jeff Shane. Jeff! Am I really doing all right in the picture? Millie, you're mildly sensational. But, uh, is that important? Of course. Well, uh, what's important to me is that, uh, you're here beside me. I, um, I thought we were talking about the picture. Millie, I'm trying to propose to you and you want to talk about pictures. Uh, Jeff, this isn't the time to... What's to... the matter? You still carrying the torch for that guy back in Middle City? Well, I, I don't know for sure. I... I don't even know where he is. And you're wasting your time. Millie, I can give you everything you've ever wanted. And I will. Oh, you're awfully sweet, Jeff. Besides, we can do wonderful things together in pictures, Millie. 
We can go right up to the top together. How about it? I, I, I don't know, Jeff. Oh, but, Millie, you can't go on for the rest of your life waiting for a guy who didn't even keep in touch with you. Well, maybe, but... Look, I... let's arrange it so our wedding will take place just before our picture is released. Just before? We'll get the publicity department started now. The whole setup's perfect. Jeff Shane's newest prize winner not only gets $60,000 worth of prizes, but she also gets Jeff Shane. Jeff, if you think I'd marry anybody for publicity... Oh, that's not it, honey. You know that. Uh... Well... But as long as we love each other, why wait when there's a million dollars worth of publicity to be had right now? How about it, darling? Well, I... Yes, I'll marry you, Jeff. Wonderful, honey. We'll call the publicity department and get them started right away. There you two lovebirds are. Oh, hello, Mrs. Drake. Uh, Jeff, the, the studio publicity department's been calling for you. Oh, dear. Tomorrow night there's to be a surprise shower with six photographers. Think of it, six photographers. And a furniture shopping tour Wednesday afternoon with people from three magazines. Oh, and... Mother, forget it a while. I'm sick of it. Sick of it? Honey, it's money in the bank. Oh, I guess you're right, but... BT's I... already talking about starring us as a team as soon as this picture's out of the way. Millie, don't sign anything until your salary's adjusted. I don't know how they expect you to maintain any kind of social position on what you're getting. Oh, oh, there's somebody at the door. I'll go, Mother. No, no, I'll go. Why, it's Mr. Lansing. In person. Uh, Mr. Lansing, I want to talk to you about Millie's career. If you Please, think... please, Mrs. Drake. Oh, Jeff, I'm glad you're here. You got me into this mess. Mess? See here, B.T., with all the newspaper space we're set to grab on the wedding, holy smokes, what do well, you mean? it was your idea that Miss Snoring Sleepwalker here should have a real part in the picture, wasn't it? Well, sure, and she's done a great job, too. All I know is that every dime I've spent on her so far is money thrown out the window. Mr. Lansing, do you mean... If I get talked into many mistakes like her, the bankers will move me right out of the office. Why, oh, Mr. Lansing, what's wrong? Nothing. Except that the Eastern bankers are tired of all the so-called actors we bill as new discoveries. And they started a pre-testing campaign. A pre-testing campaign? What's that? Well, they get people all over the United States to look at still pictures of new talent and then give their opinions on them. Goodness, what will they think of next? They made a survey on you, Miss Drake. You want to hear some of the results? Oh, I, 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 I don't... Uh, yes. Okay. A guy in Texas says... If she's an actress, I'm Humphrey Bogart. Oh, dear. Now, take it easy, B.T. A woman in Pocatello, Idaho says, better-looking girls than her keep Pocatello beauty parlors busy. I don't believe it. A Cape Cod fisherman says, she reminds me of somebody I know, but would just as soon forget. <laughs> A butcher in Lima, Ohio says... Now, look. Look, lay off, will you, B.T.? They're jealous of her, that's all. When my little girl shows them what a wonderful actress she, she is. She isn't even going to finish the picture, Mrs. Drake. What? Then I... Now, look, B.T. Every scene Millie's made is going to be shot over with a new girl. She's out. You can't do that. She has a contract. We'll sue. You sue, and I'll produce this whole survey in court. Why, you... You monster. Mother, please. Look, I'm not responsible for what people think of your daughter. But, B.T. Yeah, I've got to get back now and try to pick a new girl for those pre-test reports. Goodbye. Well, I'd heard there were people like that in the movies. Mother, it's not Mr. Lansing's fault. Jeff, can't we go over that man's head? No, Mrs. Drake, he's the top. Well, maybe it's all for the best anyway. I've never approved of women letting their careers interfere with uh, marriage. Mother, I wish you wouldn't. Now, Lily, 
I know Jeff wanted you to have a career. But now his wife will be interested in making a home for him. Uh, to be perfectly honest, Mrs. Drake, this deal puts me in a terrible spot. It does? I, uh, well, that is, we'll have to postpone the wedding until this blows over. But why? Yes, Jeff, why? Well, uh, I'm responsible for giving Millie this big build-up in, uh... uh... Go on, Jeff. Well, seeing the way the public's reacted, gosh, I'd be laughed right out of the business. Oh, Jeff. And when that wedding publicity hits... Holy cow, if I don't stop that. Millie, i got to get right down to the studio. I understand, Jeff. Millie, do you mean that... We can talk things over later, uh, maybe tomorrow. That there's really nothing to talk over, Jeff. Well, if that's the way you feel about it, uh, goodbye, Millie. Of all the unfeeling, inhuman... Mother, let's just forget it. Forget it? Why? Jeff's just the same as he always was. His career is all that matters to him. Oh, Millie, Jeff's back. He realizes he's wrong and he's changed his mind. Well, maybe, but I... Hello, Mrs. Dre. Why, why, Tom Perkins. Tom. Hi, Millie. Tom, come in. Thanks. Oh, Tom, it's so good to see you again. Oh, Tom, dear. Millie's just been miserable without you. Mother, please. We thought everything over, Tom, and Millie still loves you. Mother, I asked you... She wants to go back to Middle City and settle down as your wife. Mrs. Drake, why don't you go for a walk? Tom, what are you talking about? Why don't you leave Millie and me alone? Uh, Go to a movie, uh, take a streetcar ride, uh, spade the garden. Well, dear me, I... I... That's it, Mother. Run along like a good girl. Young man, I... I've never been treated like this before in my entire life. Goodbye, Mrs. Drake. Tom, you've changed. Well, I... I didn't come here to talk about that. There's something I have to say to you, Millie. Tom, what Mother said is true. Yes, I'm sure it is. Well, then... Millie, I can't marry you. Oh, Tom, you're not married to someone else. No, but I've done a rather despicable thing to you and... Yep, I'm proud I did it. But what have you done? Well, Millie, it's a it's a long story, but well, I was hurt and jealous. And... Oh, darling, I I don't blame you, but I I still don't understand. Millie, those reports were faked, and I'm the guy who faked them. You are. That's right. Well, that's the whole thing in a nutshell. If you still want to marry Jeff Shane, go right ahead. But I don't want to marry him. You don't. No. Good. Millie, darling, come here. Oh, yes, my lord and master. Oh, darling, you have changed. Millie, if you'd said you wanted to marry Jeff Shane... Oh, what were you going to do, Tom? I was going to beat your brains out. Oh, Tom, you're wonderful. Uh, but, darling, how fast can we get back to Middle City? Well, let me see. The average running time between here and Middle City is... Oh, nuts to the average running time. We'll beat it. The curtain falls on the last act of another curtain time play. Brought to you by the makers of the big new Marvel. Tonight, Curtain Time starred Harry Elders and Nanette Sargent. The supporting players were Sunder Love, Sidney Elstrom, Michael Romano, and George Caesar. The Curtain Time music is arranged and conducted by Bert Faber. 
and the entire production is directed by Harry Holcomb. Our stars return now with a word about next week's Curtain Time play. Well, Pat, next Saturday, Nanette's really in a pickle. Mm. I'll say I am. Pat, have you ever... No, 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 that's enough. This is no time to give away next Saturday's show. Oh, all right. But as I was saying... Pat, uh, the play is called Engagement for Two, and I'm sure you'll like it. Come on, Nanette. Oh, you like it. (laughs) Thanks, and good night, Nanette Sargent and Harry Elder. Good night, Pat. Good night. Now I'll join this gay theater crowd as it leaves the merchandise mart. Many on their way to the glamorous after-theater spots here in Chicago. Until next week, then, this is Patrick Allen reminding you of your date every Saturday, same time, same station, when the makers of the big new Mars Bar presents... Monday night, be sure to hear Dr. IQ, the metal banker. And next Saturday, be with us again for Curtain Time. Remember, for the finest quality candy bar of them all, just try a Mars bar. This is NBC, the national broadcasting company. You are a radio listener. You have favorites. Music, news, monitor, discussions, special community services, or drama. You're listening to the OTR Now radio program. How do you do? And we're back at the OTR Now radio program. This episode from July 30th, 1950 of Cloak and Dagger is the swastika on the windmill. Let's listen. Are you willing to undertake a dangerous mission behind the enemy lines, knowing you may never return alive? What you have just heard is the question asked during the war to agents of the OSS, ordinary citizens who to this question answered, yes. This is Cloak and Dagger. Warfare, espionage, international intrigue. These are the weapons of the OSS. In today's adventure, the swastika on the windmill, the role of Paul Halfand, an OSS agent in Holland, is played by Les Tremaine. The story is suggested by actual incidents recorded in the Washington files of the Office of Strategic Services. A story that can now be told. My mouth was as dry as ashes. The palms of my hands were wringing wet. My revolver was drawn, and I moved slowly, slowly along the dark hall. Everything I had been taught led up to this, this moment. Boards under my feet teetered, and for a terrifying moment I almost lost my balance and fell backwards. Something was ahead of me, in a room along that dark passage. I sensed it more than anything else. Then I heard it. I stopped breathing until I passed that room and the voices of the hidden Germans almost slid past them to the end of the corridor. There was a Nazi stormtrooper in uniform right in front of me, blocking the exit. Well, fire! Fire! Fire again! Good work, Paul. Well, that's it. You passed the test. Now the colonel wants to see you. 
What I had just come through was a cleverly designed scarehouse that rivaled any Coney Island chamber of horrors for one-a-minute thrills. This was part of the training of an OSS agent, and it took place less than an hour's ride from Washington, D.C. Lieutenant Howe found at the present time we have no information and no way of getting information on the disposition and plans of German troops in the Netherlands. We think they're up to something. We want to know what. Now, you'll be flown to England, and from there, a submarine will take you to the coast of Holland. The coast of Holland? To me, Holland was that little country where my Uncle Brom lived, where I visited when I was 12, where the windmills were now under the shadow of the swastika. I guess we can surface about here. There's Mac on Holland. You want to take a look, Lieutenant Halfen? Oh, thanks, Commander Spurling. Through the periscope of the submarine tuna, I could see a windmill in the flat lowland of the Netherlands. I couldn't see the swastika, but I knew it was there. The pressure gauge showed 20 feet of salt water above us. Take her up! Take her up! Climbed the ladder through the hatch where an inflated rubber boat was waiting to take me to shore. I'm only a couple of yards from shore. I can get out here. <clears throat> Hand me that rucksack, please. Here you are, sir. Have you far to go from here? It's only about five miles from Makum to Bolsward, where my uncle lives. I can make it before the sun comes up. Goodbye. And thanks. Good luck. So when you rang the bell at San Paul, I jumped from my bed. The devil, I said. It's the Gestapo. <laughs> they finally put two and two together and connected me with the underground. Hush, Bram, hush. God gave you a tongue. Must you use it so loosely? I'm afraid my new Aunt Hilda doesn't trust me completely. I trust no one these days. Oh, Hilda, Hilda, this is Paul. How often have I spoken to you of the times he came here when he was... How old, Paul? Twelve, Uncle Brown. Ah, yes, twelve. And so proper, so correct. A miniature model of propriety. Well, from the looks of it, you've grown, but you haven't changed much. Still proper is the devil. <laughs> the result of my strict Quaker upbringing, Uncle Brom, remember? We were both taught never to drink or smoke or lie or... or swear, Uncle Brom. Uh, yes. <clears throat> How long will you stay in Holland? Only long enough to contact the leader of the underground and get the information I'm after. I see. Tell me... Why should we believe that you are an allied spy? Hilda! Answer me. Surely you don't expect me to carry proof about me that I'm a spy in case the Germans find me? Then how do we know? That's enough, Hilda. The devil, I say. I'll hear no more of this talk. All right, Brown. It will be as you say. And on your conscience. Your, your wife doesn't trust me. You were surprised, no doubt, to find your Aunt Katrina dead and I remarried. Yes, yes, I was, Uncle Brom. I was lonesome. It's not good for a man to live by himself. And she is a 
good woman. But she doesn't trust me. She has her reasons. There was a man in these parts not long ago. He passed himself off as a British agent, gained the confidence of some of the underground. Then he turned them over to the Gestapo. Oh, I see. Hilda's family was among those executed. You understand now? Uncle Brom, you haven't seen me nor heard from me since I was a boy. You don't know where I've been during those years in between. You don't know what my loyalties are. Do you trust me? Tomorrow I will take steps to put you in contact with Hans Bock in Luaden, a leader of the Dutch underground. When I awoke a few hours later, it was about ten o'clock. Through the window of the spare room that Aunt Hilda had made up for me, I could see the neat little milk carts jolting over the Keistin and the cobblestones. And I could see the endless stream of bicycles. And here and there, a German soldier in uniform, like a blot on the landscape. I'm afraid the breakfast is not as sumptuous as it was in the old days, Paul. Do not apologize for what we cannot change. Um, Aunt Hilda is right. It was very good. The Rogerbrood was just as I remembered it. And these current buns, these Krentenbrudges, are wonderful. Hmm. I will leave you. I have a house to clean. You're still suspicious of me? Have I any reason not to be? Hilda, enough! Paul is my sister's son. I will stake my own life's blood that he is to be trusted. Let us hope you do not have to. Hilda! Aunt Hilda. Look. This pistol. I'm giving it to you. It's the only one I have. The only one you have? And you give it to me? Yeah. I put myself at your mercy. If at any time you have proof, even the slightest, that I'm not what I claim to be, take my own gun and turn it on me. I will take your gun and take you at your word. That should convince her, Paul, you are what you say. Hmm. I hope so. Now, what about this Hans Buck? How can I get in touch with him? I will arrange for a meeting between you halfway at the Harlingen, uh, five days from now, to give him time to collect the information you are after. The days until Thursday, when I was supposed to meet Hans Buck, passed slowly, but they weren't wasted. I set up the shortwave radio on the wine cellarette in the living room. I had long talks with Uncle Brum. And I went out of my way to win over Aunt Hilda. Are you sure there's nothing I can do to help you with dinner, Aunt Hilda? Nothing. Thank you. Hmm. Oh, it's... Uh, uh, it's still raining. One need not be too clever to see that. Uh, in Holland, it seems always to be raining now. Rain, mud, and despair. I remember when I came here years ago. It was winter. I was in time for the skaters' races. Yeah. Skaters' races. And the booths. Remember the little booths that sold chocolate and milk cooked with aniseed? 
And the little cakes, all the varieties of gingerbread. Oh, how I loved them. Hand me the spoon. Uh, here. Here you are. Thank you. Tell me about America. What is it like? Well, <laughs> it's too large to describe in a sentence or two, Aunt Hilda. When the war is over, you must come visit us. Hmm. When the war is over. <sighs> well, it, it can't last forever. And America's helping. And remember, our leader, President Roosevelt, is himself of Dutch ancestry. Tomorrow. Tomorrow, perhaps, I will make you a gingerbread cake. Yes. I won her over slowly. And on Thursday, when I left for Harlingen, she said goodbye to me at the door with Uncle Brown. You know where to meet him, Paul. You have everything clear? Yeah. Everything, Uncle Brown. I'm to meet him beside the monument of the stone man on the North Sea dikes. I'll be knotting and unknotting a piece of string so he'll know me. Good, good. We will uh, see you later tonight, then? Yeah. Paul? <laughs> Here. This is for you. In case you should have need of it. My pistol. Take it back. Thank you. Thank you, Aunt Hilda. Good morning. Good morning. This habit you have of knotting and unknotting string, is it not a waste of time? Nothing is a waste if it serves a purpose. Herr Bock? Yeah, Lieutenant Alfond. We meet this friend. The information. Do you have it? Yeah. Where? Where? In my head. You'll have to memorize it as I give it to you. I could not take a chance of writing anything down. I'll remember then. Remember it and use it well. There are 40,000 Nazi troops in Holland and Belgium. These troops will be on the move within two weeks. Where are they going? Northern Italy. It'll be used to cut off the American advance there. The colonel did suspect the worst. Thank you. Thank you. I'll radio this out tonight. It is appropriate, is it not, for us to meet under the statue of this stone man? See the inscription? Uh, terminus. Yeah. It means thus far and no farther. A threat to the sea that is held back by the dikes. Thus far and no farther. A threat also to the Nazis? Yeah. You understand me well. Remember me to your uncle. And goodbye for now. Herr Bock is in constant danger of discovery by the Gestapo, Paul. That's why he could not take a chance and write that information down for you. It wasn't necessary, Uncle Brown. He passed it from his head to mine. When will you radio it to London? It's after midnight. I think I can start now. What's that? The car. Stopping in front of the house. 
There are two men getting out. So late? Who are they, Brown? Do you know them? No, I don't. I'm afraid. I'm afraid it was like this once before when I came to get my family. Uh, Paul, we were turned in then by someone who pretended to be a friend. Hilda. Aunt Hilda, do you believe I don't that? know. I don't know what to believe. I'll answer it. Gelderman. Yeah? We have business with you. Come in. This is my wife and my nephew, Paul Halfond. Your nephew? <laughs> Max, take a good look at him. Huh? Would you say he looks as if he's to be trusted? I never trust a man who looks so innocent. What are you talking about? Who are you? Do not be so suspicious. We are from Hans Bock. We're members of the underground. Underground? I was not conscious there was an underground in the Netherlands. What do you want with us? Ah, you're being very careful. I can see that, Herr Kelderman, and that's good. And perhaps this will prove who we are. Would you not say that is Herr Bock's own signature? Yeah, that is his all right. Mm-hmm. I know it well. You're convinced now. Read it aloud, Uncle Brown. Let me read it, Paul. Have reason to distrust man you sent me today. Show proof who he is or turn him over to these men for underground execution. This is ridiculous. I do not understand. Nor I. Herr Bock seemed to trust me well enough this afternoon. Your nephew is a German spy, a traitor in our midst. The devil he is. I do not believe that. Not Paul. He's not a spy. Not for the Germans. You want proof? I will give you proof. Uh, see here, in the wine cellar, uh, this is his shortwave radio. He was going to send a message tonight. He is a friend, he is an ally, he is a member of the American OSS. Uh, don't you believe me? <laughs> what is it? <laughs> what is the matter? We believe you well enough. Thank you for giving us proof of what we suspected. What's this? Shall I show them my badge, Herr Commander? Do that, Sergeant. Do that. Take a good look. The skull and crossbones. They could stop. We've been trailing Herr Bock, but we had no definite proof that he was connected with the underground. We only suspected. And today we saw him meet your nephew here on the North Sea dikes. Why did you wait until now? We figured that if we arrested them then and there, we might get nothing from them. So we waited. We arrested Herr Bock. And we found a paper with his signature on it. That note you showed us was forged. Quite right, Frau Kelterman. The note was forged. Herr little Bock, by little. Tell us anything. Inch by now inch. Can no longer I have made my way to the kitchen door. You have killed him. Right again, Frau Kelterman. And, and then around the corner. To your husband for supplying us and up the, the back stairs. The commander, yes, After him. Halt! Run, Paul! The attic! Halt! I will go worse with you! In a flood of memory, it came back. Chamber of horrors, an hour's drive from Washington. My mouth was dry as ashes, but the palms of my hands were ringing wet. Along the dark hall, my revolver drawn. Everything I had been taught led up to this. This moment. We have you covered from both sides. Drop your gun. Well, fire, fire, fire again into the darkness. But this time there was no instructor to say good work, Paul. There was just a gun in my back and a leader of the Gestapo to say... You are under arrest, Lieutenant Harlfond. How long do you think you can hold out? We have ways of making you talk. No, no. Must we convince you more? 
Sergeant. Ja, Herr Kommandor. Ja. Well? Perhaps we'll have better luck if we question your aunt. Sergeant, get Frau Kelterman. Bring her here. No, no, no. Don't do that. Let her alone. Simply because you request it? Sergeant, do as I say. We'll see how long she holds out. If she is obstinate, we'll have a shot, and you will be a witness, Lieutenant. <laughs> you find this amusing, Lieutenant Hyphon? <laughs> well, I know when I'm beaten. Don't bother the old lady or the old man either. What are you saying? Well, I, I thought I could hold out. I can see now there's no point in holding out. You've won. What more is there to say? If you're just stalling for time... I'm not stalling, Herr Commander. I'll prove it. I'll confess everything. Tell you everything you want to know. Now you're becoming smart. And so I told them everything they wanted to know. General Donovan heads the OSS in Washington. The OSS is part of the American State Department. The Minister of Finance in Britain is also head of the British Secret Intelligence. Go ahead, Lieutenant Halfond. We're listening. Corporal, take this down. I gave them a mixture of fact and fantasy that would have done the German propaganda ministry proud. The true facts I told them I knew they already knew. The rest they seemed to accept at face value. So I kept my story with a real whopper. You taking all this down, Corporal? Well, take this down with a red pencil. An invasion of North Holland is part of the Allied plan. What? The invasion will be made in the eastern area of Friesland on the Dutch North Sea coast. You are lying to us, you... We'll see if you know you are beaten. <laughs> Perhaps you've been on the wrong side, Lieutenant Hartford. You've uh, set up a radio? I think you ought to use it tonight. Time is now 2300. 2300. Paul Halfond, calling headquarters. Can you hear me? Over. OSS headquarters to Paul Halfond. You're coming in clear. I've been waiting for your message, Paul. Good to hear your voice. What Over. did you say? There's a gun in your back. <laughs> I can see it's going to take a lot to convince you. Paul Halfond to headquarters. Listen. Listen carefully. It's stinking weather for a drop, but I've got to have supplies. It's darned important. Over. Headquarters to Halfon. Would you mind repeating that so we're sure? Repeat, please. Over. What the devil's the matter? You said you were getting darn good reception. I said the weather's lousy, but it's darned important that I get a supply drop at designated point tomorrow night. Can't make it any darn clearer than that. Over. Okay. Okay, Paul. We get it. It's darn clear now. You'll get your supply drop. Good night. Over and out. Huh? You heard it yourself. The drop will be made. Are you beginning to be convinced of my sincerity? Were you nervous, Lieutenant? What? Why do you say that? I never heard you use such language before. Oh, I... Uh, I expect to get over my nervousness after I've broadcast many of these radio messages for you, Commander Brandt. After that, they drove me back to the jail. Commander Brandt of the Gestapo had never heard me use such language before. And neither had OSS headquarters. 
<laughs> In the army, they used to make fun of me because of my proper speech. I gambled on the chance that the radio operator who knew me would detect something odd about my speech. When he answered back the same way, I knew he understood I was a prisoner of the Germans and that the supply drop would probably save my neck. I didn't sleep that night, and I didn't really take a deep breath until 11 o'clock the next morning. Good morning, Lieutenant. Would you care, perhaps, for a piece of chocolate or an American cigarette? I knew the drop had been successful. They sent us home. Uncle Brom, Aunt Hilda, and me. But we brought a boarder with us in the person of Commander Brandt. House was different now. Aunt Hilda prepared meals silently. Uncle Brom smoked his pipe and looked at me, wondering. And twice a week they sat in the living room and watched and listened as Commander Brandt and I contacted OSS headquarters. OSS headquarters to Paul Halvin. This is important. Four and twenty blackbirds are coming through the ride. Storm clouds overhead. Take in your washing. Good night. Over and out. Hmm. What did that mean? Fifteen thousand more allied troops are added to preparations for the invasion of Holland. <laughs> well, maybe we'll rush twenty thousand more German troops to the Dutch North Sea coast. Already we have forty thousand troops waiting there. We were going to send them to... Uh, Else, well, but they will undoubtedly be of more use here. Undoubtedly. Yeah. Well, I'm going up to bed now. Don't shit. The dinner was very good, Frau Kelderman. I cannot help being a good cook. <laughs> yes, well. It's thoughtful of him to leave us alone so much. Is it? I do not care much for your company. Hilda, maybe he's got his reasons. I wanted to tell them my reasons, but I didn't dare. Instead, I stood at the piano and played the scale with one finger. Even Uncle Brom was getting to the point where he couldn't look me straight in the eye. But as Uncle Brom became more suspicious, Commander Brandt became less suspicious. I think I will go up to bed, too. Something was wrong with the piano. The sea was sharp, as if something were pressing on it, making it sharp. I walked around to the back of the baby grand, and I saw it. It was a small round disc the size of an overcoat button. I knew it was attached to a dictaphone in Brandt's room. That was why he left us alone so much. I'd give him something to listen to. Paul, I know there must be some explanations for these things you're doing. Now, look. You haven't had it so good for years. Eggs on the table. When did you have eggs on the table last? Privileges nobody else has. Extra ration books. You might as well face it. This is a new order. Germany's order. And if you're smart like I am, you'll fall in with them. Paul, Paul, is this you? I told you he was a traitor. A spy. I warned you. You wanted to see me, Herr Commander? Yeah, of course. 
thank you for coming to my office so promptly at my call. I follow orders. So I'm beginning to see. Uh, sit down, sit down. I want you to hear something. I think I'll go up to bed, well, too. I, I don't understand. Super. A dictaphone. I still don't... Oh, I know there must be some what? explanation... That's Uncle Brom. Ha. Now, look. You haven't had it so good for years. <laughs> That's me. Eggs on yeah. the table. Well, what's the I idea of doing it on the table last? Privileges nobody else has. <laughs> Extra ration books. You might as well face it. This is a new yeah. order. Germany. You've convinced me completely. If you're smart like I am, you'll Lord. fall in with them. I have a proposition for you. Yes? I want you to go to England for us. Act as a double agent. You can be more valuable to us there. Leave Holland? Huh? But aren't I a great help to you here? I know the risk it involves. But Germany will pay you well after the war. Think it over. I thought it over and let him convince me. And a few days later, a German stormtrooper gave me a personal escort to the border. And I made my way back from the enemy lines. After I left, my aunt and uncle escaped and were hidden by the underground. And it wasn't until the war was over that I was able to see them and explain. Lieutenant Paul Halfen returned to OSS headquarters, and thousands of Nazi troops waited on the shore of the North Sea for an invasion that never came. Thus, once again, the report of another OSS agent closed with the words, Mission accomplished. Listen again next week for another true adventure from the files of the OSS on... Cloak and Dagger. in today's Cloak and Dagger adventure as Paul Halfond was Les Tremaine. Brahm was played by Stefan Schnabel, Hilda by Virginia Payne, Bant by Barry Kroger, the Colonel by Raymond Edward Johnson. Others were Carl Weber, Jerry Jarrett, Arnold Robertson, and Bob Wilde. The script was written by Winifred Wolfe and Jack Gordon. The music was under the direction of Murray Ross. Today's true OSS adventure was based on the book Cloak and Dagger by Corey Ford and Alistair McBain. This program was produced by Louis G. Cowan and Alfred Hollander and was under the direction of Sherman Marks. Programs, get your programs here. Mystery fans, there's an exciting evening waiting for you tonight on NBC. First, some listener will have a chance to win a double reward for solving the case on $1,000 reward. Next, when a woman reads her own obituary in the paper, the saint finds himself involved in a case that leads to murder. Then Sam Spade works his way through the rod and reel caper. Yes, you'll find adventure here tonight. Stay tuned now for High Adventure and the Big Guy on NBC. It was just almost unbelievable. You could sit in your living room in Florida and hear a man speaking in New York, and after a while in, in Los Angeles, you heard people singing, uh, you heard music, uh, you, you heard events, uh, you heard a football game uh, in the Rose Bowl that was being played right now. The world is listening to O.T.
OTR now. And we're in the final half hour of the OTR Now radio program. We'd like to present some science fiction or something scary at this time. Today it's science fiction. The program's called Beyond Tomorrow. It was meant to be CBS's first science fiction program. This episode was announced in newspapers, but it's not really known if these episodes were ever actually broadcast. This program's called Requiem. It was intended to be the first show of the series, and it evolved from the series Beyond the World. It's the story of an old man who wanted to die on the moon, and it was written by... Robert Heinlein. Now for tonight's story, let's go beyond tomorrow. Beyond tomorrow, next month, next decade, next century, when we will still be housewives and farmers and merchants, when some of us will be broke and some of us will be ambitious. And some of us will be lonely, as people are today. But when we will employ robots to do our housework and go for a weekend to the moon. Beyond Tomorrow, science fiction stories about us and our children in the days that are soon to come. Tonight, based on a famous story by Robert Heinlein and adapted by Robert Senadella, the story of a man who lived... For a dream. All right, everybody, all right. Right this way to the moon rocket. Yes, sir, ladies and gentlemen, this machine is the very same type of machine used by the first men to reach the moon. You can step inside and take a look for only 25 cents. But you've got to hurry, hurry, hurry. Because the captain's going to take off for the stratosphere in about five minutes. Come on, see the rocket that made a flight to the moon. Hurry, hurry, hurry. What are you looking at, Sonny? That rocket. What'd you think? You like rockets? I'm going to be a rocket pilot someday. I'm going to be a pilot on the moon run. Ever been inside one? No. Well, I'll take you inside this one if you can tell me what company operates the moon run. Oh, everybody knows that. The Harrison Moon Rocket Company, of course. Right. Come on. Oh, gee whiz. Okay, right uh, up the gangplank. Two there. tickets, please. Okay, sir. Who else wants to see the inside of the rocket that made a flight to the moon? Hurry, hurry, hurry. See the inside. Hurry, hurry. Here we are, Sonny. Well, what do you think of it? Gee, look at that instrument board. Yes, you see this semicircle of dials? Well, this dial tells you the velocity. And here's one for the air density inside the ship, and... Uh, I know, I know. And this one's for the air density outside the ship. And this one measures the gravitational pull. <laughs> I guess we're just a couple of fans, eh, Sonny? Say, mister, you ever been to the moon? No. No, I haven't. Sorry, sir. Uh, yes, Captain? You and the boy will have to leave now. We've got to cast loose for the flight. Oh, gee. Oh, you, you run along, Sonny. I want to talk to the Captain. 
Well, okay. So long. And thanks, mister. Good luck to you, my boy. Uh, <clears throat> Captain. Yeah? How far up do you go on this flight? Not far, just about a thousand miles. Do it twice a day. Crowd likes it. We're out of sight in four and three-tenths seconds. How they go for that takeoff. Ever take passengers? Got 25 bucks? Yes. We take passengers. Good. I'll uh, have the doc come in and give you a checkup. Uh, oh, no. What's the matter? Uh, nothing, nothing. Uh, if you're in a hurry, I thought that maybe we could dispense. Not a chance. Want me to lose my license? Hey, Doc. Yeah? Uh, Doc, come in here a minute. Be right there. Well, all right. Standard procedure. It'll be over in a jiffy. Take off your jacket. All right. Do you want me, Mac? Gentleman here wants to take flight. All right, sir. Roll up your sleeves, please. There you are. All right, let's test your blood pressure. Uh-huh. How old are you, sir? Sixty. You don't mean seventy. Sixty? All right. But it's no go anyway. You mean you won't take me? I couldn't even guarantee that you'd live through the takeoff. You see, sir, it's not only that your blood pressure is high. I'll bet you have a heart condition, too. But at your age... I'm 60. Well, let's say 60. Even at 60, bones are brittle, highly calcified, easily broken in the shock of takeoff. Rocketry, sir, is He's a, a young, young man's, man's game. game. I know. Sorry, sir, I'd like to take you, but... Oh, well, it's, it's, it's all right. I rather expected it. But, uh, Captain, could you and your uh, engineer have dinner with me at the fairgrounds restaurant after your flight? Well, we'll be hungry. Good. I'll be waiting for you. Hiya, mister. Huh? Oh, hello, Sonny. Gee, you stayed in there so long, I thought you was gone with him. No. Not this time, Sonny. Ah, more coffee, Captain McIntyre? Thank you. Uh, smoke a cigar, Mr. Cummings? Don't mind if I do. Ah, here you are. Boy, Corona, Corona. Mm-hmm. Well, then. So you, uh, you quit the moon run, Captain. Why? I, uh, didn't like it. Oh, I can't believe that. You're a rocket man. Tell him the truth, Mac. It was Rule G that got you. Oh, Rule G, eh? You still drink? No. But they don't give you a second chance. Uh, how about you, Mr. Cummings? How is it you're not on the moon run anymore? Oh... I smuggled a beautiful blue rock back to Earth for a girl I know. Boy, I wish I hadn't. I could be in Luna City tonight. Ha. Now, there's a town. Uh, how about you, Captain? Would you like to be back in Luna City? Why are you asking us all this, Mr. Harrison? Oh, I've got my reasons. Did you like it on the moon? <laughs> the moon's the only place for a young fellow, Mr. Harrison. It's still undeveloped compared with what it's going to be. It's just opening up. 
It's the frontier all over again. I, uh, might be able to get you boys back there. What? What do you mean? Look, I want to get to the moon myself. And frankly, I need a couple of boys like you to take me. Fellas who know the ropes. Well, what's the matter with getting an excursion permit and going in a company ship? He can't pass a physical exam, Charlie. Well, I know, but if you're going to afford to hire us, Mr. Harrison, why don't you just bribe a company doctor? It's been done before. No, no, it won't work for me. I'm a little too prominent. Say, you're not... My name is Delos D. Harrison. You're D.D. Harrison himself. I thought so. Well, gosh, sir, you... You own most of the company yourself. You, you, you ought to be able to do anything you like, rules or no rules. No, no, that's not true. I'm a good deal less free than you are. What? But holy... Well, I, I tried to do what you suggest, but the other directors wouldn't permit it. They're, they're afraid of losing their franchise. You've never been to the moon? No. Say, this is really tough. Why, if it hadn't been for you, none of us had ever got there. And you can't go. Not legally. But if I find a ship, are you boys game to take me? Sure we are. Now, wait a minute. I think we better have more details. All right, fair enough. Now, you'll have to buy the ship for me. If I did it openly, everybody would figure out what I meant to do and stop me. Yeah, that's right. I'll supply you with all the cash you need. You go out and locate some sort of ship that can be refitted for the trip. Look, Mr. Harrison. Why do you want to go to the moon so badly? Well, I don't know whether I can explain it to you or not. It's the one thing I've wanted to do all my life. When I was a kid, practically nobody believed that men would ever reach the moon. They laughed at the idea. But I believed. I read Verne and Wells and Smith, and I set my heart on being one of the men to walk the surface of the moon, to see her other side, and to look back on the face of the earth hanging in the sky. Captain McIntyre, Mr. Cummings, I've lived longer than I should. But I don't want to die until I've set foot on the moon. You get hold of that money, Mr. Harrison. We'll take you to the moon. Mr. Harrison. You heard me, Belden. Sell them. I want every share of stock I own realized in cash as rapidly as possible. Spaceways, Spaceways Provisioning Company, Artemis Mines, Lunar City Recreations, the whole lot of them. Sell them all. Hello. Jason, this is Belden. Oh, hello, Belden. I'm calling you because your uncle gave me a rather peculiar order today. Really? What was it? Well, now I work for your uncle, Jason. I, I shouldn't be calling you. It's just that I hate to see your inheritance endangered. What? Say, so what's going on? Well, now, I, I'm supposed to tell you. I, I wouldn't want you to forget me in case... Well, that, I understand uh, you perfectly, Belden. You'll be taken care of. What's the old man doing? He's ordered me to sell all his stock. He's converting everything into cash. Belden, I... I won't forget this. Thank you. I'll see my lawyer right away. And so, Your Honor, we contend that Mr. Harrison's conduct gives clear indication that a mind once brilliant has become senile. 
We therefore pray this honorable court to declare Mr. Harrison incompetent and to assign a conservator to protect his financial interests and the financial interests of his heir, Mr. Jason Harrison. That is all. Has Mr. Dulles Harrison's attorney any closing argument? Only this, Your Honor. My client has the right to enjoy his wealth in whatever manner best suits him for the few remaining years of his life. We pray that this court will confirm our opinion that my client has this right. I thank you. Mr. Cummins, this court has as high a regard for individual liberty as you have. But it must be admitted that in selling his holdings and demanding cash, Mr. Dallas Harrison has acted in an eccentric manner. The court cannot overlook the fact that men do grow old. Yes, men do become senile, and in such cases must be protected. I shall take this matter under advisement until tomorrow. Court is adjourned. Extra, extra millionaire disappears. D.D. Harrison missing. Extra, It's awful, Jason, but I couldn't have foreseen it. I don't suppose so, Belton. He must have gone to court yesterday with that money in his pocket. When he saw that the judge would decide against him, he decided not to stick around for the verdict. He took everything? Everything. We've got to find him. Well, the police are working on him. Well, you've got to help them. How? Well, figure out where he went. Well, I don't know where he went. You're the only one who can find out. Go through his papers, look for clues, well, look for hiding places, examine everything. Letters, bills, scratch pads, diaries, everything. Find a clue, report to me. It's up to you to dig up the leads, Belton. We've got to find that old man before he spends all my money. Hey, this ham gravy's good. Charlie, you'd rather eat than anything, Mr. Harrison. Mm, that's a libel on the girls in Nona City, Mike. <laughs> I've had a pretty good appetite myself since I joined you boys. Desert air. Exercise. No, no, I don't think a man's health depends so much on what he does as on whether he wants to do it. I feel good because I'm doing what I want to do. That's all a man can ask of life. Say, Mr. Harrison. Yes? How does a guy go about... Getting rich, like you did. Oh, I don't know, Charlie. I never tried to get rich. I never wanted to be rich or well-known or anything like that. Ah, you wouldn't kid me, would you? No, no, no. I just wanted to live a long time and see it all happen. Oh, I wasn't unusual. There were lots of boys like me. Radio hams there were and telescope builders and airplane amateurs. We had science clubs and basement laboratories and science fiction leagues. No, I didn't want to be rich. I just wanted to live long enough to see men rise up to the stars. And if God was good to me, to go as far as the moon myself. It's been a good life. I haven't any complaints. There's the moon up there. Look at it. The moon... We'll be there in a day or two. See, Mac. Yeah? As far as you're concerned, you're ready to go now, is that right? That's right. Well, then, we're just waiting for your calibration runs and pre-flight tests, eh, Charlie? 
Well, say, I uh, might run them tonight. Well, that's what I was getting at, can you? Well, sure, why not? If Mac will help, eh? I'll help you. We'll all help. With luck, we can take off tomorrow. Come on, boys. Let's go. Let's get that. Oh, uh, Catch him, Mac. Uh, Mr. Harrison. He's out. Come on, Charlie. Let's get him into his tent. Right. Yeah. Easy now. Easy does it. Ah. Ah, there. Where's his medicine? In his vest pocket. I've got it. Break that capsule. Hold it under his nose. Right. He's breathing better. We won't go tomorrow. We've got to wait until he's back to normal. Look, uh, can we leave him for a sec, Mac? I think so. Come outside for a minute, then. Okay. What is it? Mac, we're not going through with this. Why not? It's murder. He'll never stand up under the initial acceleration. The takeoff will kill him. It's what he wants to do. Oh, we can't let him. Why not? Why not? Because he's such a swell old duck, Mac. Okay, what do you want to do with him? Send him back? Let the court put him away in a bug house? Let him dress in a bathrobe and sit in a wheelchair in a sanitarium till he dies of a broken heart? No, no, I don't want that. Okay, get out to the hangar and make your setup for those test runs. I'll be along. Hello. Jason, Eldon speaking. I've got something. Yes, what is it? He had it in a strong box. It's a deed. A deed to a piece of land in Arizona, six acres. Apparently, from the description, this is desert land. When did he buy it? He didn't. The two men named James McIntyre and Charles Cummings bought it a month ago. It looks as if what he did... I know what it looks as if. Good work, Belden. Now get out there right away and stop him. Stop him at all costs. In 20 seconds, we will return you to Robert Heinlein's famous science fiction story, Requiem. A few words first concerning speed. In the era of rocket travel ahead, speed will be an important factor. But speed today can be the direct cause of sudden death on the nation's highways. As spring dissolves into summer, more and more people will be driving towards vacation lands, taking the family for a Sunday spin. And more and more necessary will be the element of caution. Don't speed. Remember that accidents don't always happen to someone else. By speeding, they can happen to you. And now, back to our story. Hey there! Hello, stranger. Looking for something? Looking for somebody. Who? Are you, uh, James McIntyre? What about it? Hey, what's up, Mac? Now, come here, Charlie. What's the matter? He'd be Charles Cummings, I guess. So? You have a spaceship here, and you're taking D.D. D. Harrison on a flight to the moon. We haven't got a spaceship. What are you keeping that big shed? Strata yacht. Where's Mr. Harrison? Harrison? Uh-huh. You know anybody named Harrison, Charlie? It's no use, Mac. We can't take off now. They know he's here. You talk good sense, fella. Where's Harrison? See that little tent over there? Where? There, right in back of you. Oh, well, that one. Is he in there? Yeah. I... Catch him, Mac. Nice going, Charlie. I hated to. It was the only way. Let's leave him here. 
Darn it, that's the finger I broke playing shortstop. I'm always hurting that finger. Come on, we haven't any time. Get Pop into the cabin. Strap him into his hammock. Right. Can you tie up this guy? In a jiffy. Lona City, here we come. How was it, Mac? I'm all set. How's Mr. Harrison? Mac, I don't think he'll live through the takeoff. It's what he wants. I know. You better stay with him. Right. Okay, Mr. Harrison. Okay. We're ready to take off. Let let me go over to the port. I I want to watch the earth. No, you, you've got to stay in the hammock. All set? All set. Okay, Mac. Here we go. See, Mac. Going all right, Mac? Going all right. Is he? Yeah, he's alive. But he's in bad shape, Mac. How bad? A couple of cracked ribs, anyhow. I don't know what else. I don't know whether he'll last out the trip, Mac. His heart was pounding something awful. He'll last, Charlie. He's tough. Tough? He's delicate as a canary. I don't mean that. He's tough way down inside. Yeah, I better stay with him. We're on our way, Mr. Harrison. Can't I... Can't I move to a port now? Can't I watch the earth now? Oh, nothing to see yet. The blast hides it until we build up enough speed to coast up to the changeover point. Maybe if you're all right then, we'll we'll move you to a port. But only if you're all right. Because you see... Mr. Harrison. Mr. Harrison. Mr. Harrison. Dead. Dad, look. Look, Dad, look. Take it easy, Mr. Harrison. Dad, look. Up in the sky. What's that up in the sky, Dad? That's Hawley's Comet, Dallas. Where, where did it come from? Oh, I don't know, son. Way out in the sky somewhere. It's beautiful, Dad. It's beautiful. I want to touch it. I'm afraid you'll never be able to touch it, son. I want to touch it. I want to touch that beautiful thing up there in the sky. Take it easy, Mr. Harrison. Take it easy. Dallas? Dallas, will you stop puttering with that machine and listen to me? Oh, hello, Charlotte. I didn't know you were there. I know you didn't. You never know I'm here. All you do is tinker and putter and work over that laboratory bench. I'd like to have it ripped out. But didn't I show you in the paper, Charlotte? They've made a flight into the stratosphere. We haven't been to the movies for six months. Well, if they can reach the stratosphere, they can reach the moon. That's what I'm working on, Charlotte. It's big. It's important. You never listen. I'm warning you, Dallas. You've got to choose between me and this laboratory. Choose between you and the laboratory? Choose... But don't you see, I'm going to make a machine that will reach the moon. Mr. Harrison, please, try to be quiet. Try to lie still there. We'll be at the changeover point soon. She she left me, Charlie. She left me. Take it easy, Mr. Harrison. It, It works. It works. 
I know this time the machine will work. I know this machine will reach the moon. I'm going to take off next month. No, you're not, Mr. Harrison. What do you mean, Doctor? My own machine, and I can't take it to the moon. You'll have to get somebody else to take it to the moon, Mr. Harrison. But, but this is my own machine. I want to take it to the moon. I want to touch the moon. Mr. Harrison, we know enough about rocket ships to know that a man of your age with your weakened constitution cannot travel in them. You get somebody else to fly your ship to the moon. You stay on Earth. But I, I've got to go. I've got to go. I've got to go. Mr. Harrison, please. We've passed the changeover point. I've got to go. I've got to go to the moon. Oh, take it easy, Mr. Harrison. I'm going up front with Mag. Mag, I'm worried. How is he? Delirious. He keeps raving. I'm worried about the landing. You better set her down awful easy. All right, I will. I'll ease her in on an involute approach curve. All right, go ahead. Here we go. out. Mr. Harrison. Well, he's breathing anyway. Let's get him out of the ship, Charlie. Okay. You get the compressed air tanks out. I can handle them. He only weighs about 20 pounds of lunar weight. Right. All right, Mr. Harrison. Here we go. You wanted to get to the moon? Let me get those buckles unstrapped. There we are. Okay. Hey, Mac, get the door open, will you? Right. Get this compressed air tank out. Okay, come on, Charlie. Bring him out. Right. You better set him down here on the ground. Right. Uh. Where am I? Is this the moon? This is the moon, Mr. Harrison. Look. Look in the sky. The, that moon up there, that... That's the earth, isn't it? That's the earth, Mr. Harrison. Uh, I made it. I'm on the moon. I'm looking back at the earth. You made it, Mr. Harrison. Oh, I can die now. Got a pencil? Uh, here's a pencil. Paper? Paper, Mac? Oh, I haven't got paper. That, that shipping tag... That shipping tag on the compressed air tank. Here it is. I've got to write. Then I can die. I'll hold you up. Go ahead and write. And when you bury me, put this over my grave. We'll carve it in marble, Mr. Harrison. No. No, leave, leave it on the shipping tag. A shipping tag from a compressed air tank. That's what I want over my grave. Write it, Mr. Harrison. Under the wide and starry sky, dig my grave. <laughs> 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 
and let me lie. Glad did I live and gladly die. And I lay me down with a will. This be the verse you grave for me. Here he lies where he longed to be. Home is the sailor, home from the sea, and the hunter, home from the hill. You have just heard the first in a new series of science fiction stories, Beyond Tomorrow. In tonight's presentation, Requiem, Everett Sloan was featured in the role of D.D. Harrison. Music was composed and conducted by Henry Silverin, and John Campbell, Jr. was our program consultant. Beyond Tomorrow is produced and directed by Mitchell Grayson. Listen again at the same time next week when CBS will bring you another story about you in the future. You, Beyond Tomorrow. Misquote the masters, may we say, what is so nice as an evening at home, especially when your radio dial is set to bring you CBS's quintet of early evening programs. Here's a cross-section of entertainment for all the family. Programs like Lowell Thomas, famed traveler and commentator, Beulah, that laughable, lovable character created especially for Hattie McDaniel, there's the Jack Smith Dinah Shore Margaret Whiting Show and Club 15 with your host Bob Crosby and his singing partners the Andrews Sisters and Joe Stafford, and of course, Edward R. Murrow with his roundup and analysis of the world's news. Five quarter-hour shows, five nights a week, for your enjoyment over most of these same CBS stations. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Well, time's run out for the OTR Now radio program. Be sure to visit our website, where you can find all sorts of old-time radio for your enjoyment, at www.otrnow.com. Tune in next time when we present more of this great old-time radio. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Rick Radke. We'll be back again. We hope you'll be back, too. So long. For more information on our programming, please visit www.otrnow.com. Email us at otr at starcreations.com or write us at P.O. Box 17148. Long Beach, California, 90807. OTR Now is a registered trademark of Star Creations. This is a Star Creations production. All rights reserved.